Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show, episode 282. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, written and directed by James Gunn. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3 is, of course, a Kevin Feige production. Before our spoiler review begins, want to let you know once again about Fan Show Plus, where you can hear us talk about extra MCU topics, like how the current WGA strike impacts the MCU, with even more specific information to come on Fan Show Plus about that. As we know, a delay was reported for Blade, as if that project needed any more delays. Uh, it has been impacted by the writer strike, amongst other impacts that we will see in the MCU. So more of that to come and to be discussed on Fan Show Plus, and also the box office performance of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So if you want to hear those shows, you can go uh, to patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or you can go to Apple Podcasts, and you can search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel, find it there, and subscribe so you can hear those episodes. And then make sure you follow us in those places where you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How are you doing, Paul Herman? I am, uh, I'm, I'm exhausted. I am uh, just, I'm bummed out because I just, I, I haven't been able to give everything the full attention that I like it to because I'm, I'm selling my house and buying a new house and I'm tired. But, you know, what always gets me happy is when I have things to kind of get my mind off of stress and, and all, all my over anxiousness. And is when we have a great Marvel film to talk about. And I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to discussing this because. I mean, this is any Marvel film, but this one is different because this was, I think, the to me, the Guardians will always be the the true testament of the power of Marvel because they took some so, such you know unknown characters and made them household names, and I think it just it, the the culmination of this of this uh this this current team is just, it was very interesting to kind of you know go into all the interesting things we heard before it. And we'll we'll get more into that obviously later, but yeah, I'm I'm exhausted, but I, I'm just, I'm very much disappointed I wasn't able to squeeze in a second viewing for this movie, unfortunately. But uh, I I'm ready to talk about the one time because it was a good one time. I'll say that I'll just I'll just kind of just little tip of the iceberg. It was a, it was a good first time, first viewing, and I can't wait to get into it. Yeah, I can't wait either, and I was bummed to have to wait so long. I had to wait longer than usual to see an MCU movie because of work stuff. I couldn't go to, look at me whining about my first Nerd World problems, but here we go. So yeah, I had work stuff, could not go to the advanced screening that I was offered, and then could not go even on opening night. I think that's the first time I've missed a, a Marvel opening night, and I don't know how long. I got to see the movie for the very first time on Saturday of the opening weekend, and I, uh, of course, loved it. Spoiler alert. And we'll go over all the reasons why. But yeah, that's the longest I've had to wait to watch a Marvel movie since I think like Captain America, the first Avenger, there was stuff going on. I didn't see that one immediately on the first day. Um, but yeah, it, it was uh, well worth the wait, even having to tack on a couple of extra days. And then I was able to just narrowly just... Shortly before, uh, just enough time to watch the movie before we started recording today, was able to get in 
a second viewing of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and I'm so glad that I was able to because not that it made such a huge difference in my perception of the film. I already really loved it upon first viewing and just love it even more after the second viewing. But I'm really looking forward to getting into this, Paul, because as you said, Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, has been an incredibly important franchise in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I know it's kind of weird to talk about the historical significance of a franchise that is, you know, nine years old, just about from the release of the first film. Although we're coming up on about 11 years since we first learned of the existence of this movie. And that was really, I think it it was a significant time. And I still want to go back and, and talk more about this on the podcast. I know we talked about it when way back when we did our Road to Infinity War series five years ago, and we talked about Guardians of the Galaxy and how crazy of a time that was in 2012 when it was a little bit before Comic-Con, when there were some news and and rumors circulating that Marvel was going to make a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and then they officially announced it at Comic-Con. And and in that, thinking of the context of that particular moment, that was following the Avengers and everybody saying, oh, here's Marvel being so high off of their success that they're going to make a movie that has the talking raccoon and the talking tree. And from there, it went from, I took it as a positive sign that this was not a studio that would be content or rest on its laurels, that they were going to keep taking risks and taking bold swings. And of course, the James Gunn rewarded them for that with what he's done with the franchise so far. But there was plenty of that other stuff of Marvel just going too far with it and Guardians of the Galaxy up until that movie came out and had such an amazing opening weekend and then just continued on with amazing box office performance. Up until that moment, there was plenty of talk of how Guardians of the Galaxy was going to be Marvel's... It was their biggest risk, which was not true, um, and it was going to be Marvel's first flop, and none of that happened. And so much had changed. Within a few years' time, not only was there a Guardian sequel... There was a ride in Disney California Adventure. Now there's another ride over at Epcot at Disney World. And we're talking about the Guardians of the Galaxy just having such a huge presence in popular culture just in the span of these past nine years. Whereas prior to that, almost nobody knew who these characters were. And even a lot of people who knew who the characters were didn't necessarily have some deep, longstanding relationship with these characters. And so to see the way, to the point where these characters go from complete or very relative obscurity to getting big cheers when they show up for the first time in a massive movie like Avengers Infinity War, and then all the way leading to where we are now. Um, It is an incredible journey that the Guardians of the Galaxy have been on. And we, we all know what the deal is, right? We know that, I mean, even before we knew James Gunn had a new job, we knew that this was going to be the finale of his iteration of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And now we know it it really and truly is the finale because James Gunn is going to be moving on to Superman Legacy and everything that he's going to be doing as a co-CEO of DC Studios. So this really is it. And anytime you have a finale, fair or not, because, you know, no movie should have the additional pressure of anything other than telling its own story and telling its story the best that it can. But there are the extra external pressures of this needs to be a finale worthy of a really, really great franchise with some beloved characters that are beloved thanks to the success of the prior films and how good they were. And so there's so much anticipation. There's so much expectation. 
And it's very, very difficult to live up to, to answer those calls and, and, and meet the audience with what they're expecting. And I think for the most part, based on the audience reception that I've seen, it feels like James Gunn accomplished that. I know for me individually, he totally did. And if I step outside of Guardians of the Galaxy and, and ha- what it's meant to everyone all over the world, just for me, I've talked about this and I'm sure I will expand more uh, before too long. But obviously, for many reasons over the years, Guardians of the Galaxy has been a franchise that I have very personally connected with, and it's even synced up, um, not through James Gunn's intentions, not that he could know, but it's synced up with some pretty important moments in, in my life. And so I have had this my own relationship with this franchise that has been really, really important to the point where when we get the credits rolling at the end of this movie and they're showing pictures, images from the previous films, I started getting emotional just from that. Uh, thanks to, of course, the great movie I had just seen, but everything in the, the context of the entire history of this franchise and, and my own journey with it, and obviously collectively all of our journeys with it as fans. And so it, it's really hard when a movie has to live up to all of those things. And I would just have to say, I, I know, Paul, it sounds like you felt the same way, but I know for me, James Gunn hit it out of the park. He is three for three. And I think that's that's where you and I differ is I, yeah. I love volume two just as much as I love volume one. And I, I have them both in the Marvel Masterpiece collection. Mm. And now, well. granted, I've only seen it twice, but in Marvel Masterpiece collection, I think most of you listening have uh, have been with us before. And you know that I don't rank movies, but when I just put them in different tiers, different levels, the Marvel Masterpiece is the highest tier and I know not everyone would put Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in that tier, but I do. So it's right up there mm. as one of the best films in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in my eyes. And I would have been just fine if James Gunn and company had delivered something that was just below Marvel Masterpiece level. But that's not what happened. He went three mm. for three, uh, up to the plate three times as a director, three Marvel Masterpieces delivered. At least that's how I feel Right now, after two viewings, I don't really expect that to change. Theoretically, it could, but um, this was another one for James Gunn where I was just completely blown away. I was incredibly moved and entertained, and I know this was a darker, heavier film at at times than we've seen in, in previous Guardians films from James Gunn, but... I thought the way he handled all of that was outstanding, and we will, of course, get into those moments and then while but going into those spaces never really blocked them from still being able to be entertaining be very funny all of the things that we expect from the guardians franchise but then even more of the stuff that people didn't necessarily expect when they were sold on the trailers for the first guardians movie which is just how much heart how much raw emotion and really just the processing of emotions and the way we see the characters not only do that, but verbalize that in a way that I, I think allows the audience to kind of relate. And I feel like, certainly I know it's true for me, it unlocks things and puts things even in your own life in a new perspective, uh, just with the way the characters realize, uh, become aware of their own emotional experiences and, and what's actually happening as things get pointed out to them as they discover for themselves. It's just a remarkable way. The emotional intelligence of the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, I think, has always been uh, one of its greatest and, and secret weapons. And I think that's why it's a huge part of why it has meant so much to audiences. And I know that's certainly been true for me. Um, and it was as true as ever watching Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Yeah, 
Guardians will always have a special place in my heart. And that first movie, I, I think, is is so, so good. Like you, you summed it up best, the fact that it has so much heart and you weren't expecting it. You you kind of the trailers kind of sell you on one thing or sold you on one thing in the first movie. And it gave you so much more than what you were expecting. And I think that my problems with volume two, you know, it's a whole different podcast, but you know, I will say this volume three, I was looking forward to it because I, I, I like James Gunn's movies for the most part. And when, you know, go on a side tangent here for a quick second. Uh, when we did a review for, for the suicide squad for the comic binge, you know, I said the suicide squad is a, is a great, great movie. And I thought it was, is, I still think it's one of my favorite DC character films, maybe ever. It's that good. I, I thought it was such a great movie. And I was so excited when James was one, uh, reinstated to back to, to finish his trilogy and two, the most named head of DC Studios, you know, and seat part CEO of you know the whole this whole thing and directing Superman. And when when he was going back to volume three, it's it's interesting because I I'm one of those people who really liked the Infinity War Guardian stuff. And I know after volume two, I just it was just, it felt like more of what I liked about them in the first one. It definitely wasn't James Gunn writing them. But it was, it was still good. I mean, I, I don't think James Gunn needs to write the Guardians personally to make them all the Guardians characters. I just I never thought that. But that being said, I was I was happy to see that James was going to come in and do it. And I'll, I'll say this when, as we're getting to you know leading up to it, everyone started praising this movie. I didn't know there was advanced screenings. And I, I got to tell you, Sean, I, I put it on Twitter. I was like, I'm a little worried this is going to get overhyped because my problems with volume two, you know, are still there. I still, I don't know. I love Suicide Squad. And I, I like him as generally as a filmmaker, but I don't know. I mean, I was like, I was getting excited because I'm like, I'm sure I'm going to love this movie. And I, I'm, I'm pleased to report that I really like this movie a lot. I don't know if I love it. And it's not because I don't, I didn't like it enough to love it. I just, I need to see it again. I just, because I'm so busy, that's why I, I'm so bummed. I haven't had a chance to you know watch it one more time. Cause I think if I, if my gut tells me, I probably will end up saying I love it. I just, I can't say it now because I love the majority of this movie. There are a few things we can, we'll get into that. I, I don't want to be critical of, but I'll talk a little bit about, but though, just like with Wakanda forever and no way home, you know, I want to make sure like the, all the good things that I loved about it will always in, will always overcome what the little things I didn't like about whatever you know, the movie is or whatever. Right. So I, I'm happy to report that I think volume three is a return to form. It definitely felt more like volume one to me. And, and again, we'll we'll, di we'll dissect exactly what that means. But that's the feeling that I got um, from it. And like you said, everything that we got, the closure of the team uh itself i thought was really interesting and i liked a lot about that too um and i, I gotta tell you this i'm just gonna you know, I don't, i'm not gonna skip ahead too far but i'm just gonna say it right now that oddly enough there's a no way home comparison to this movie besides being a third film sean that you actually see like rocket R raccoon come into play like he becomes a full-fledged character right. like that we and again i don't want to jump too far ahead but i just, just want to say that I like that. I like the fact that, you know, they, I like, because back in the comic books, you know, it's a different origin, right? I want me to say that, you know, first off right away that he's from a different dimension basically. Right. And so he's like, 
not the same kind of thing. I'm not sure they've retconned that or, or whatever. I, I haven't stayed too current on, on Rocket stuff. But back in the day, that's what it was. And what I he never thought he was a raccoon. But seeing how like he you know they kept that that that, that kind of idea up in the movies, and then how that we see that here in the movie in, in this third film that he's like he embraces the name Rocket Raccoon. I was like, when it happened, I'm gonna tell you all right now. I was like, God damn, James Gunn, you did it. Like, yeah, I mean, no, I was like, Man, well, it's it's perfect. a perfect way to show perfect because this is Rocket's movie, right? I, I think it right. will spend a lot of time talking about Rocket, and it's not to say that it's. It's not also some other people's movie in, in other places. Obviously, it is. But mainly, we're talking about Rocket and his story, even though I know in the present tense of the story, he's laid out for most of it. But that's so we can have we can flash back and, and really see where he came from. But this was all about Rocket becoming this fully realized version of himself. And, and so that that's symbolically in there now with him taking the full name. It's not just something where... He said he wasn't a raccoon. He aggressively corrected people anytime they said he was a raccoon, including multiple times in this film. And then he takes on that identity and, and he chooses that as part of his full name. And even getting to learn that he chose the name Rocket and, and why he chose that name, even though the idea of having a name didn't necessarily come from him. That came from Lila. And so and all of that backstory stuff just it's the whole it's good to have friends stuff is just amazing and then heart shattering uh, when we uh, move on in, in the movie. But yeah, I, I think with Rocket getting him to that place and having it be it was your story all along. You just didn't know it to, of course. Yeah, we're jumping ahead here, but I did say it was a spoiler review. Right. And it says it on the title of the episode that, yeah, it comes it comes full circle to him being the one leading the Guardians of the Galaxy in the new iteration of the team following this story it's amazing what james gunn was uh was able to do and and yeah might as well get this out of the way right off the bat nobody died uh well not nobody a lot of people died in this movie but none right, of the yeah. guardians died and i know they did and we kind of talked about this during the trailer previews and stuff of like they're so they're being so obvious about warning us about somebody dying that it almost feels like there's a swerve that nobody's actually going to die or at least Rocket's not going to die and and truth be told uh Rocket didn't die Drax did not die in this movie none of the main guardians did and I think that's James Gunn showing and and the MCU has already shown how this can happen right and we know that it's part of mm -hmm. storytelling yeah. but even for James Gunn showing with this team that it can be a satisfying conclusion without saying there's no more stories available for any of these characters. And I think that's a great thing for James. Because I think if James Gunn wanted to, if he told Kevin Feige and whoever he needed to at Marvel Studios saying, look, Rocket or Drax or Star-Lord or whomever is going to die in this story, and here's the reason why, I don't think anybody would have stopped him. I don't think anybody would have said, you don't get to kill X character. But I think yeah. that's James Gunn. James deserved He earned that. Yeah. No, he absolutely did. And I think the fact that he didn't, I mean, I think the main motivation behind it is this is the story he wanted to tell. But I also think that regardless of whether or not this was part of his intention or part of his motivation or not, it still is significant to show that this is the love and respect that he has for the characters that at the same time, he knows he can leave them for somebody else to carry on their stories in, in different places. We do even get 
we don't get a Guardians of the Galaxy will return. We get a le- the legendary Star-Lord will return at the very end of this movie. But there's also still the setup of the new Guardian. So there's a lot of pieces still on the table for other people to, in the, in the future, pick up and carry the, the story of these characters forward. And that is, in its own way, a gift to the Marvel Cinematic Universe that James Gunn has done so much with these characters, for these characters. And we saw how that paid off when he wasn't the one writing and, and directing them at Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And now someone else at some point, or multiple someone else's at, at various points in the future are going to have opportunities to work with some of these characters again and work with some very realized, just properly developed versions of these characters because of what James Gunn was able to do over mm-hmm. these uh, over these first three volumes of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it's just, it's amazing what he was able to do. One thing I, I also want to throw out, though, in, in terms of just initial overall praise of this movie before I forget, because once we start talking about characters and stories, it's, um, it's going to get lost. It's off. But, uh, yep, yep. but Henry Braham, the director of photography on this, he also, uh, also did, um, was the cinematographer on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, also did The Suicide Squad with James Gunn. This is, I think, pound for pound, this might be my favorite cinematography in any Marvel movie. I think mm. I love the way this movie is shot. I love the way the action flows. And when they get to that big hallway fight of the guardians versus the high evolutionaries, Hellspawn, that is amazing. Uh, I love that entire sequence, but even the opening of following rocket around um, and what an incredible difference that is tonally. So now we can start getting into the story, but yeah, this is beautifully shot. And I, I just mm. love the look of this movie Shot for shot, this might be my favorite cinematography in uh, in the MCU. I mean, I maybe not. Maybe I got to go back and, and re-look at some things. There's other ones that have uh, that are pretty beautifully shot, but boy, Volume Three really, really stands out, and and I absolutely love it. But yeah. we're not necessarily going to go in order, beat for beat. Uh, but I think we'll start. Um, I want to start by focusing on Rocket and and Rocket's story, and you sure. know, we we get an initial backstory of we get you know. Baby Rocket in the cage with a hand reaching in, and that brings us to present-day Rocket on uh, on Nowhere, listening to an acoustic rendition of, of Creep. And right away, I think there's a, a very stark, no MCU pun intended, contrast of the way this movie opens when you compare to the musical sequences of the first two movies, which are much more celebratory. You know, Star-Lord dancing and singing to Redbone's Come and Get Your Love, or Baby Groot, you know, as the Guardians are battling an obelisk, Baby Groot just not caring about any of that and just dancing his heart out to uh, Mr. Blue Sky. It's very joyful in the openings of the first two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and that's totally not the tone of this one, which is much more isolated with Rocket, even though there's plenty of people around, but it's very down, it's very down note, it's very sad. Rocket is obviously just going back to some of the memories of uh, of, of his the start of his whole story, the start of his, his entire journey. And right away, I think that's James Gunn as a writer, director, giving us as an audience, just teeing us up for a story that is tonally going to be different than we've seen from the previous two Guardians movies. It doesn't mean it doesn't have some of the tone that we've liked and, and even loved about previous Guardians movies. But yeah, there is something... 
this is a, a sadder story. This is a, a darker story. And that is communicated, I think, in this, uh, in this sequence. Obviously, there's plenty of joy to be had to be found throughout this movie, especially when we get to the end. But I, I like the, the cue there from James Gunn. And also, I, I love just in terms of the plotting or in terms of the way things are woven into it, I love that the, that the Zune is, like complete, is plugged into all of nowhere. So everybody's hearing yeah. the music when they play. Uh, I, I think is just really, really awesome. And it's a great... I'm talking about how I love how it's shot. Yeah, I love the camera just staying on Rocket and just going through, giving us this tour of nowhere, which this version of it, I mean, we were introduced to in the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, but really getting a chance to to see it. We tour, we see, some fam- we see familiar faces, we see new faces that all brings us to uh, Rocket finding a, a very drunk Star-Lord who is uh, about to pass out. But yeah, that opening with Rocket... I thought was really, really great. I mean, it just, it looked beautiful. Obviously, the music's great, but I also think it's it's James Gunn letting you know, giving you at least some hint on what you're in for. Yeah, the whole the whole intro with the, you know, the, the baby raccoon and the hand coming in and then going to, to Rocket, walking around is a great, it's not only an introduction to, I think, the tone of the film when you're going, obviously, because it immediately set me up for, uh, like, it, 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 a lump in my throat. Because he does a great job of showing you, like, this is not going to be the the best experience that you're going to, you know, this is not a wholesome, fun experience that what this raccoon's going to go through, right? And we all knew that was going to happen, but to actually visually see it starting is like, it's it's almost like you're, you're, pre- you're preparing the audience, like, emotionally, but you're also dreading because you know you don't want to see it like it's not like oh we're gonna see it. it's like oh we don't really want to see it like we want to see rocket like be funny and and like wink at the audience you know or at people and say funny things and fire machine guns and that's what we want to see rocket do we don't want to see rocket's origin of like this awful thing that happened to him and i think that that is such a, a crucial um way to not manipulate the audience but really prepare you know get them emotionally like charged and and when you cut to then rocket walking around and introducing everyone under that somber tone of a, a song that i love that you know it's an acoustic version of, of creep that you know a song that radiohead itself is like ugh, like thrown away from but everyone's still like like obviously like james gunn still love the song um walk around i love the one shot where it's it's, it's you know the, the whole pa thing of everything mm. i loved i loved all that that, that was great a great way to get the audience, you know, in tune because the thing for me and, and when you're doing these visual cues, it's, it's to charge memories of the audience too. Like, Oh yeah, there's this girl, this, there, this girl, there's, there's Nebula. There's, there's, you know, nowhere. This is where you know, the, the PA system It's going through and having the whole thing is like a Drax and, <clears throat> and star Lord like going through everything together is a great way to charge people's memories while, while also like, you know, they're, they're, emotionally preparing for the see that they this this creature get created in a very scary way ominous way is it, really really clever I, and this is where i think they're people like james gunn james gunn doesn't get enough credit for what he does because the thing with james gunn as a director is that he he is very he, he takes chances and he's not afraid to do things a dark you know do things in a dark way and you know if you look at all those other films he does he, he do he can get dark emotionally and like visually and, 
and put them together and and, and, dis- and disturb you. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier. It, it, it puts you in a disturbing mo- mode where it, you become almost vulnerable and to like to accept like what's going to happen with Rocket and everything. And it, it just, I don't know, it gets you on his side immediately. And he does that with all his characters in his films where it's like where a lot of, I think, directors and writers, it's hard to do that. And that's the one thing, if you watch Super, if you watch... You know, all these other films that he's done that are like, you know, they're not like completely from mainstream audience necessarily. He does these things to prepare you and get you on their side, but it's always in a very odd, disturbing way that not every people not everyone can execute. And he does it so flawlessly. It's it, it is really impressive that what he what he can do as a writer and a creative person. So yeah, this whole intro is great leading up to which I can't wait to get into or to get in, but what yeah. it leads into eventually here. Yeah, I mean, and I think the choice, though, of even going with an acoustic version of the song, that also is, there's symbolism in that, right? Because what's the exactly, acoustic version? Yeah. It's the stripped-down version, and that's what yeah, we're doing to Rocket, isolated. right? We're going yeah. to strip it down, mm-hmm. we're going to distill this character all the way down to his very core, but we're actually going to, we're going to enlighten you in a little bit and actually show you that one of the things we know, as you mentioned, like one of the things we love about Rocket is Rocket just going crazy and making bombs and shooting machine guns because all of that's really fun and, and whatever. But our perception of Rocket is that he is this inherently violent character, but that's not how he started. That's also not even what the high evolutionary engineered him to be. Because there's a moment, we'll get into a little more of the backstory, where he says, you know, violence, we don't like it. And, you know, it's a, there's a specific traumatic moment where Rocket becomes violent for the first time, and that obviously informed him going forward. But I think it's, you go back to that intro with the music, and that's really what it's communicating, is we are stripping away what you think you know, so that way we can actually tell you what happened with this character. And even with that character, like, the, a lot of his own self-hatred, which I thought was explored brilliantly in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and is a huge part of why I think that movie is a Marvel masterpiece. And I I think it... Well, Paul and I will never agree on it, but I think that movie is is outstanding for a lot of the stuff that it was doing, particularly with uh, Rocket and Yondu. And just seeing him sing along with that song, I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo, I, I think that's Rocket. Like, that's him, that's what he's... tragically has thought of himself for such a long time. You know, what the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. That's obviously a lot of self-talk for Rocket. I can understand why he can relate to that song and why he feels like some truth in that as he is singing along with it. I know it's not the only song he sings along with in the movie, but that's the one where we spend uh, the most time with him uh, listening to that song. So I I thought it was just an unbelievable intro, a great choice that really sent a message to the audience that this is not going to be quite as celebratory, at least not for a little while. Like This is not going to be as celebratory of an experience as you've seen in the first two Guardians of the Galaxy movies. But Paul, I I think what I want to do here is let's stick with the Rocket backstory because... And then we'll... I know the next thing you want to talk about is Adam Warlock showing up and we will talk about it, but... I want to talk about the. Let's get all of the flashbacks uh, sure. okay, done, and then we'll we'll get into some of the present day stuff. And I'm telling you that, and the audience stuff. Uh, I'm telling you and the audience at the same time, so we can figure out. So that way, everybody knows uh, which direction we're going. But sure. a, as far as Rocket's journey, 
obviously this stuff is incredibly difficult to watch. I mean, the moment we, I mean, we see yeah. the initial flashback is the hand reaching in the cage. And then we see Rocket being put back in the cage. And literally his first word that we ever hear him say, and as far as we know, it's the first word he ever uttered is hurts. Um, as we see him in pain, bleeding, shivering, terrified, uh, and then he meets his friends who do not yet have names, but we will eventually learn uh, Lila, Teefs, and Floor. And I mean, of course, you, I mean, I know these are obviously CG animals, but I bought it, and immediately you go into, I mean, the body horror of what's been done to them, the, the pain, but then also the unwavering hope of these characters up until kind of the, the very end. Um, but also just the way, I mean, Lila takes care of Rocket in that moment. But seeing Rocket at his most vulnerable, you know, as vulnerable as he's ever been, as scared and hurt as he's ever been, I mean, it's definitely putting you in a, a specific place. And, and I think it's it's been done very effectively in the franchise up until this point, right? I, I think that there were two moments in the very first Guardians of the Galaxy movie that kind of that sold the story of Rocket and the pain of Rocket. There's Star-Lord looking at, you know, the scars and implants on Rocket's back when, um, during the intake when they're going into the kiln. And then there's, you know, Rocket in that moment where he gets in the argument with Drax. And, you know, I didn't ask to be, you know, pulled apart, put back together over and over and over again. And the, and the lip quiver uh, in that moment. So I, I think that we've seen these things hinted at in the past for Rocket. And, and it's one thing to just understand, yes, this was hard for him. Yes, this was very traumatic. I'm sure it was awful. But it's a whole other level when you are actually seeing it. And you could certainly ask the question of whether or not we ever needed to see it. But I think in this story, it wasn't just there for the sake of just showing trauma for trauma's sake. It was how it informed the development of this character, but also... What really stood out to me, though, is who Rocket continued to be and how hopeful he continued to be all the way up until his friends were gone and he, and he had lost all hope when any hope of a potential future was taken away from him. That's when a lot of things changed. But what you got to see from this character is, yes, the trauma that he endured, but also an, a level of pure optimism and happiness and joy coming from this character. Cause we also see him, they're trapped. They spend most of their day trapped inside these tiny cages and they're having fun playing and, and laughing. So you, that says a lot about who these characters were more specifically about who rocket was. Um, and that also informs just how, how you feel about what you've seen in the present, that this was how he started. And, and obviously the events that will, that will unfold throughout this film corrupted that which just adds to uh, adds to the tragedy of it but you see a lot about rocket that is very hard to watch in terms of what he endured but also a lot that just shows you why you why you love this guy and why he couldn't help but be the hero that he's been for the guardians of the galaxy like where did that come from it wasn't all snark and violence there was that there was that purity there was that craving of family of friendship of wanting to take care of others wanting to look out for others that's what compelled him to latch on to and help take care of Groot and, and look out for Groot for such a long time in the original version of uh, Guardian, the original Groot from the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. All of these places, came, all of these other aspects about him that seemed contradictory, counter to how he would act or the things he would say, 
they came from somewhere and, and you see their you, it's not just the origin of, of the violence and the trauma it's it's who, who rocket always was deep down that's also revealed in the backstory and i think that's a huge part of what makes it so brilliant yeah with 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 this whole backstory i it was a a very much is very much a brilliant move by james and he obviously had this set up for a long time i remember he got leaked out you know the origin of 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 rocket and who created him was a high high evolutionary and i remember reading that years ago from that famous leak or whatever and and thinking back then like that's pretty goddamn genius now what I thought was also interesting was the fact that he took this character and he made it his own. Like Rocket Raccoon it is all we see in the comic books. It's predominantly it was already set there for 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 James to kind of get into it. Like I, I talked about it on the comic pages in the last week, you know, the, the original comic run of the Star Lord miniseries where Rocket grew meat for the first time, basically, and Rocket's kind of not quite the, what we have here. But you see, there's the seeds of it. But what's genius is that he took this character and, and turned it thematically into something that I think is so much more intriguing and interesting and compelling than what the comic, the original comic version ever was or could be. And the one thing that I remember seeing uh, or hearing James Gunn talk about was he relates most to Rocket Raccoon as a character. Mm-hmm. And obviously what, you know, we all can read into that what we want. And I think that's what he wants you to do, right? James Gunn wants you to, you know, when he says that he, you know, for people who care about it, like we would, Sean, he wants us to read into what we would think it is right. For the most part. And maybe he said it, what it was, I don't know, but either way, what to me, what is this whole movie about? What is the arc of rocket raccoon? It is confronting your past and moving on and look, and I, I don't know, Obviously, what happened when when he wrote and worked on Volume Three after the whole firing and the whole thing, whatever. But one of the things I, I thought was really interesting when he said that, and looking at what what this, what what his journey was, it's and obviously there was probably some metaphor when you, you you pour yourself into a character. But you know, Rocket goes from like this innocence to destruction and, and hatred and, and 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 hates everything around him to acceptance and and when he confronts his past and it, you know he says at the very end like I'm through running mm-hmm. um you know I'm, I'm going to confront this and I thought it was really interesting that what all James has gone through it's almost like and I'm not sure if it's all coincidental but obviously his whole arc was always meant to confront his past and that's a whole thematic part of this whole movie is confronting your past and coming to grips with it and moving on and I love that. And I'm not sure if that was always the case. It seems like that what probably what it was. I think it's pretty awesome and that he can like go out on Marvel on telling that story, just like, you know, moving on and going forward from what he had before and doing that. I think it's really cool. And I think, and, and obviously he probably went and dealt with that his own self in his own life before this whole situation with Marvel and doing, you know, the suicide squad and coming back. I think it's really awesome. And I think it's really, really cool to think about how he, he relates. And I, I'm assuming that's what he's talking about, that he's talking about this, this whole you know, thematic idea of taking your past. You go, we go through this traumatic experience, but coming to a complete closure of it and being like, you know what? It's done. I did my thing. I'm going to move forward. And I like that. I love, I love that. It's such a strong thing that I, everyone knows I'm a big theme guy. 
this is to me what makes this movie and and rocket and him executing that whole thing with the characters of having someone who has this innocence gets destroyed and it's why he rejects he rejects love from others unless he can protect them like Groot, right like we talked about i love the fact we see the origin of that the morality of that character and how we see that develop and change naturally and what we see at the end of the movie and I, I love that. I think that that to me, you see that development over three films is so critical and so crucial. I wonder if volume two might play better for me now because of that. And I, I think I, this is a great companion piece to volume two. I mean, obviously it's part of the trilogy, right? So it, it goes with volume right, one right. as well. But I think that in terms of Rocket's journey, because with James Gunn, and he's you know he's said it since the first movie that the guardian that he relates to the most is Rocket. And I think you see different stages of that, although I, I think it gets deeper in volume two. And one of the best scenes in the MCU is that shouting match between Yondu and Rocket, where Yondu basically explains to him, I know I know what you are, I know who you are, I know what you're doing, because you're me, as he was explaining the types of things he would do, pushing people away, rejecting them before they could reject him, Basically rejecting things like family and friendship, emotional intimacy, any of these connection, rejecting these things because the loss of them hurts. The loss of them, in theory, hurts more than never having them at all, despite the whole thing of better to have loved loved and lost than never have loved at all. I generally think that's true, but at the same time, if you lose someone that you love, that is an incredibly painful experience. And the way we see Rocket endure that in his past, in this uh, in this volume, that goes back to what he was rejecting all along. And I think there's probably some guilt he feels, like he felt like, even though it, it obviously wasn't him, but he felt like he played a role in his friends getting killed. Again, totally, 100%, not his fault at all. All he was trying to do was save them. But he feels that. There is a guilt that he feels. But also, regardless, even with the independent of the guilt, what would still be there is that feeling of that sense of loss. And that's where a lot of that self-hatred and that rejection and everything that was fueling, there was just a lot of hurt there. There was a lot of pain within Rocket that he was dealing with and that the way that would come out would sometimes be how he was treating other people and obviously not always treating them in a very positive, healthy way. And so that was, he had to work through that in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And I think he got to a really good place with that at the end of Volume 2. And I think that informed his character as we saw him in Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. But there was still that pain was still there and the, and the source of it was still there. And so even though he was a more self-aware version of himself, a, a emotionally and mentally a healthier version of himself following the events of volume two, and especially that conversation with Yondu to be able to bring it full circle and be able to confront his past, which wasn't his intention at the start of the story. He was attacked. He didn't begin this, uh, this movie on a mission to go confront the high evolutionary, but be, but he was obviously still haunted by that past. And then through the events of this movie, finally has a chance to confront the source of this trauma and have an opportunity to, and I know we're definitely jumping ahead here, but to have an opportunity to kill the high evolutionary, but then not choose violence like he did initially, although also out of necessity against the high evolutionary 
uh, the first time around. Just an incredibly, an incredibly satisfying and compelling, uh, beyond compelling emotional arc uh, for Rocket. But just some other moments here in the backstory. Um, amazing though that uh, Linda Cardellini, uh, Laura Barton, is the voice of uh, of Lila. Does a, a terrific job doing that. There's also, by the way, uh, War Pig is voiced by is voiced by Judy Greer, who's Maggie Lang in the MCU. So we had a couple uh, vocal performances here uh, in this movie from people who are MCU veterans in terms of us actually seeing them uh, on screen. But there was just great stuff here. I mean, the whole it's good to have friends. And that being, that's a great line that really sticks with a character like Rocket because it was good to have friends and then it was until it became painful to have lost friends. And so then it didn't feel as good or Rocket didn't think it was. But somewhere deep down, he still knew it because he still formed friendships. He tried to fight it, um, tried aggressively to fight it in terms of forming a new uh, friendship or new friendships and a, a new sense of family with the Guardians of the Galaxy. But Ultimately, those relationships won out because he craved that love and that connection because why wouldn't he? Um, and he knew how much joy and, and fulfillment it could bring. And so he couldn't, ultimately couldn't help himself, especially when he got uh, a little bit of help breaking it all down and, and becoming aware of what he, how he, what he was thinking and how he was feeling, thanks to, again, in part, that, conver- that very important conversation with, uh, with Yondu. But yeah, this group of Rocket, Lila, Floor, and and Tiefs, uh, I loved how much fun they had. I loved the optimism that they had, the joy that they had, picturing their time in the new world and, and everything that they were hoping towards. And even the stuff with uh, with Rocket, I mean, it makes it even made the high evolutionary a more compelling character in the sense that he would be genuinely impressed by and you would almost feel like he had some sort of parental connection with Rocket when he sees how well Rocket's doing with the equations that he's working out and the conversation they're having, that Rocket correctly, you know, that P-13 correctly identifies a Rocket. And uh, also Rocket's introduction to music, I thought, was a very, uh, very sweet moment in this. But I I thought that it's just, it adds to how twisted it is with the high evolutionary, though, that Rocket felt that there was, he feared the high evolutionary, but yet at the same time also really wanted his praise, really craved his praise, his approval, um, because obviously that there, there was some feeling of safety that might be, that could be achieved if, you know, this person that abuses him is happy. And maybe if they are happy, they won't uh, continue the abuse. So it is just this awful twisted thing for Rocket, but also just adds to, just how sinister of a character the high evolutionary is that he can have these moments where he seems like he's so genuinely connected to and impressed with rocket. But then at the same time, just very quickly able to dispose it. Like when rocket solves the problem of the high evolutionary of the aggression that was happening in, uh, in the other animals that, uh, that high evolutionary was hitting the fast forward button on their evolution. Rocket is the one who figures that out, which drives the high evolutionary mad because here's Rocket figure. Rocket's the only thing he's ever created that was also capable of original thought, capable of invention. And then we, despite all of that, he's impressed by it. He's driven mad by it. And yet at the same time, it's ultimately disposable of, okay, well, we're just going to, we're just going to take your brain out uh, and we're going to, we're going to go ahead and examine it. And that's how, and everybody else, all of Rockets, his, the friends that he knows, everybody else from his, you know, from Batch 89, they're all just going to be, uh, they're all just going to be incinerated. And so it's, 
it's very it's so emotionally complex and i and i think it just make it just adds to the sympathy that you feel for yeah. rocket because you feel i i felt myself wanting the same things he wanted oh this actually seems kind of nice that the high evolutionary seems to be genuinely impressed by what rocket's doing here and i just really hope it could stay this way and not go bad which is exactly what rocket was hoping and the fact that he continued to believe like when the high evolutionary calls him out for it like you could figure out, you could solve for not having the aggression. You could solve for all of that, uh, all of that biological engineering and, and all of that, all the complexity that goes with that. You could solve for that, but you couldn't see the obvious thing that there was never going to be a future for you in, in the new world, that that wasn't you. I was using you to help make better creatures that could go in this new utopian society, but you can never be that and you were never going to be that and you should have seen it. But that just speaks to, for Rocket, that's not about intelligence. That's about emotion. That's about trust that Rocket was craving, feeling, and and that's also about hope that didn't necessarily go... It doesn't have to check with logic. And and a lot of times the logic may not necessarily factor into it. And that's what you get with Rocket and with his friends. Despite all that they had suffered, despite everything that had been done to them, they still had hope that it was all really, truly in pursuit of some greater good that they would get to be a part of. And of course, that was never going to be the case. But that's why I say at his heart, at his core, there is a part of Rocket that is uh, undyingly optimistic, that is trusting, that is forgiving, that is compassionate, that is all of these things, that is all these pure and wonderful things that were tragically taken advantage of by the high evolutionary but that is what's informed all of the all of the good things. I know it. I know it set Rocket up for a lot of pain, but at the same time, it set him up as a character for all of the amazing things that all of the amazing things that we have seen him do, the sacrifices we have seen him make over the course of his time in the MCU. That at his core, Rocket actually isn't the cynic that we thought he was. That was something that was learned through his experience. But at his core, in terms of who he was, he was always the one who actually believed in having some sort of brighter future and, and believing that there would be space for him and his friends to enjoy it. Yeah. For me, rocket, I, I love the idea that he is brilliant and there's that emotional intelligence and optimism that it gets often overlooked. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if we're going to talk about high evolutionary in this, uh, this right now, but there is this, the whole idea of the abuser and looking for the approval of the abuser that it would stop. But also because it's like that whole idea of the opposite happening, right. Mm-hmm. It's a, if, of, of, because if you can make them like love you and praise you, that means that only will stop, but it's like, it almost elates you. It, it like relieves you of everything. And that's where I think this is so interesting and so fascinating that you're able to capture that between a Wuji, but also like a CGI like animation, you know, and 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 get that emotion out with like the alternate of the voice because it's a younger character or it's developing. It's all there, and it is really impressive that because that's the cause, because not just the performances that all is there too. Don't get me wrong; it's all equal, but the writing's there, and you're and it's all capturing it on screen beautifully well with with this character of rocket and that to me is what 
you had that with on top of these sympathetic characters that you have. Because here's the thing, too. it's They're disturbing to look at. And again, I, I go back to my whole idea of, of James Gunn. He creates this world of like disturbing things that most people wouldn't be able to get away with, in my opinion. That when you have like a rabbit with a thing over its mouth with spider legs, uh, that's disturbing. It is. And yeah. it's it's it, it is not that is not a pretty picture that you could get Disney to sell outside of James Gunn. But because James Gunn has earned that, he's able because he does that for all his other films, he puts these weird like I'll never forget, like, and this is like super, right? Super has that scene where it has like a weird creature like thing with tentacles, like it, it touches his brain. Right. And then the character of super is like, I was touched by God. And it's so, and this is an independent movie. It's, it's supposed to be uh, you know, weird and like you know, whatever, but like, but in the movie you buy into it because it's James Gunn and the way the character is, you buy into it too because the character it's it's it all in the writing and the performances and how he executes the scene. James Gunn is able to get away with like these these creatures that look very grotesque and very disturbing, and he gets away with it, and you sympathize with them. That is an impressive feat, and I think that that's where you put all that onto the screen. It earns when you go on to the idea of like why these you sympathize with them even more so to when Rocket's trying to impress a high evolutionary, you're like, oh man, like, yes, please stop. Hi, high evolutionary, stop messing with them. Like they're doing their job, yeah. right? Like, you know, that it's all earned. And you see, you can see why Rocket is, you know, is, is trying to sympathize and get into there and trying to like earn the respect and love of this, of this, you know, I would say he's evil, this emotionless, emotive, being that he is right of the high evolutionary. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to chew on with that, but yeah, I, I think that all that's there in the whole backstory of rocket, James Gunn really executes in the disturbing. And, and I think the very, you know, he, he blends the disturbing with the acceptance and have you buy into the, the disturbing nature of what we're doing. And that is really impressive all within rockets, you know, backstory yeah i think your introduction to rocket's friends especially floor the the bunny character yeah that character is very disturbing to look at and then but that's the just the magic of james gunn's writing and his direction though and and the beauty of the storytelling here is that those characters you know initially aren't the easiest to look at it is disturbing imagery and yet by the time it within a few minutes though of actually meeting those characters all of a sudden they're just as as beautiful and you care about them just like you would any other characters like they he does such a great job of getting these characters to resonate emotionally and and I thought that you know and and also just the I, the fact that these characters kind of through each other and through their friendships like that's part of where they even were able to find not only their collective connection but even individual identity where they're realizing when we go to the new world, you know, we should have names because what we have right now, these aren't really names. And I don't think they ever really, obviously, nobody cared to check with them or talk to them about having an individual identity or anything like that. Even Rocket's conversation with the high evolutionary, go back to when he was doing the equation, listening to music, sounds, well, that's music. We like it. Yes, we do. 
And then when Rock is talking about violence, violence, we don't like it. It's not, I don't like it. It's not even, and even when he's checking with the music, like we like it, I need to like what you like because I want your approval. And that's what everything is about. And then they actually get a chance to become more realized individuals through the actual, through genuine friendships, through genuine connection, where they all get to choose their names with Lila and Teefs and Floor, and then of course, uh, and then of course Rocket. And I, I know the kind of the the end of the backstory is is the part where I, I know it gets. That's I think certainly one of the darkest points in the movie is when we see Rocket has has learned that there is no plan for them to go to the New World. They're all going to be killed uh, the very next morning. But Rocket. We, we saw him take a couple pieces in one of his initial meetings that we saw with the High Evolutionary, and we're wondering why, and now we see that there was a part of Rocket that must have understood. So even though um, the High Evolutionary thought that, that Rocket um, didn't get it or didn't see any of it coming, and I think for the most part, Rocket didn't see it coming. I think for the most part, Rocket wanted to continue believing that there would be a place for them in the new world. But on some level, Rocket must have felt like he might need to escape one day and, and might need to help his friends escape because he was obviously preparing for it by taking piece by piece whenever he could uh, everything that he would need to assemble a key to get out of their cages. And he finally does that. And I mean, he's been in separate. The only, the only cage he's shared with anyone is floor. He's never actually been in the same space. You, you get the impression with Lila or Teef's. Let's Lila out of her cage. They finally get to hug each other for the very first time. And as Lila says her, as tries to say her famous line one more time of it's good to have friends, she is shot and killed by the high evolutionary. And Rocket's response to this, the raw emotion of him just crying, sobbing, just wailing out loud, which the high evolutionary mocks as Rocket having won a, uh, a crying contest that's the pain right there. That moment, that pain is what Rocket has been running from this entire time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's the worst he's ever felt. That's the most that it's ever hurt. And that's as raw of a form of pain as he's ever endured. I think that was even worse for him than the physical torture that he endured at the hands of the High Evolutionary. That was probably right there, the most painful moment of Rocket's life. And it was very informative in a lot of ways. I mean, emotionally, the way that damaged Rocket, um, but also in terms of where it turned. As I said, this was a character who was who didn't have a penchant for violence, was actually engineered not to be violent, um, and he turns violent in that moment uh, on the high evolutionary. But that's not even what, what happens initially, right? All Rocket can do initially is just stand there and sob. He's incapable of doing anything. I mean, Floor... One of the most difficult things for me is when Floor is saying is just screaming, like kind of begging for uh, begging for her life to say, "Rocket, take Floor, go now! Like, let's leave, let's get out of here." Um, but Rocket just can't move. He he is frozen in uh, in that moment, and I don't know that they would have been able to get away right at that second anyway. So Rocket is just overcome with that, followed by the rage as he uh, claws away at the face of the High Evolutionary. And then a couple more goons come in, and they fire shots. Rocket fires back and takes him out, but not before Teefs and Floor are, uh, are are killed in that sequence. And this was so incredibly difficult to. And this is so incredibly difficult to watch. And I know that some of these moments that are are so dark in this movie. I, I've already seen some of the 
backlash is maybe too strong a word, but maybe some questioning of, wait a minute, this is a little too dark. This is a little too heavy for this franchise because kids go and watch these movies. And look, I understand both I understand both sides of that argument, right? I understand that you could you could certainly rely on the rating is PG-13, so it is there in the rating that it's not suitable. It may not be suitable for kids under age 13. I so I, I totally understand just standing on that uh, on that rating and the way it works for a PG-13. But I also understand, you know, parents who maybe have been able to take younger kids to the previous two Guardians movies and not have scenes that maybe would have been quite as as dark or disturbing for their kids and maybe having a little bit of a false sense of security, a false sense of security at what their kids would or would not see when they watch a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And I, I think really what that points to, not necessarily a, a fault of this movie, not even necessarily a fault of the expectations of, of people who went in to watch this movie and maybe brought younger kids to watch this movie, it just shows how inadequate the PG-13 rating is uh, and has kind of been for a very long time at how broad it is of what what triggers a PG-13 rating versus what you could still do and get away with and still be in a PG-13 uh, rating that maybe we still need something in between PG-13 and, and R rating. I don't know. I um, mean, there might need to be some or something between PG and PG-13 um, might be something that we need to have. I'm, I'm not really sure, but that's not what this podcast is going to be about anyway. I understand if people are upset by some of the imagery. The imagery is upsetting. It is disturbing. So I I totally understand that side of it, and especially anybody who maybe didn't want a kid to uh, to see that or maybe took their kid out of the theater. And again, I understand where their false sense of security would have come from. And so it's not, uh, I, I do, I get it. At the same time, yeah, I think as far as being within the bounds of a PG-13 rating and then James Gunn and company feeling like, look, it was necessary to go here. It was necessary to show the extent of Rocket's pain. And look, they didn't show everything. I mean, even the physical torture that he endured, we watched the Guardians watching it. We don't actually see it. We see a little bit of the aftermath again when he's just when he's when the first word that he says is hurt. So yes, there's a lot of here that is dark and disturbing, but I feel like it was necessary in in this story to get to to get to the heart of that trauma and get to the reality of Rocket's trauma. And I think James Gunn found I think what I feel like for me anyway was the right balance of being very raw with it, but at the same time not being totally explicit with it. Um, and so I, I think that was a, a tough thing to navigate. I feel like for the most part, I don't think there was any way to navigate it in a way that everybody would have been happy and fine with um, and still properly showing what happened to Rocket. So I, I think that James Gunn found as good of a balance as, as I think he probably could there. Um, and I do think that overall, this backstory with Rocket, I know a lot of the focus would be how, how dark and disturbing it is. Because that's uh, some of that image, some of the the sounds, the dialogue, the imagery. Yes, some of those things are are definitely going to stick with you, and I know are, are certainly sticking with me after two viewings of the movie. But what's also sticking with me, what's also resonating, um, yes, it's a tragic end to these characters, but also what was revealed about those characters was very positive. And what was revealed about Rocket was uh, a lot of positive things at the core of who he is and who he's always been that maybe we didn't necessarily know or see or expect based on what we had seen to him up in that up until this point. And you can't show that. You can't show how 
incredible rockets optimism resolve his joy you can't it's hard to show all of those things and what they really mean if you're not showing what was going up against all of those feelings and all of those sensibilities so it is about that balance and i think james gunn struck it well yeah here's the thing with the whole rating thing i'm gonna say i first of all i i I, for me personally the ratings there you have it pg-13 that's my my whole thing with it but in my opinion it, it, like you, you said it best that this is what was necessary for the character and i don't want to censor art a lot of times and i i think sometimes it, it's a gray area a lot of times don't be wrong there's a not a right or a wrong everything's not created equal that way but that being said kids I, I, I firmly believe, and maybe it's we I grew up and we both grew up in the kind of age where, where movies were darker when we grew up for kids, you know? And they they did they were morality tales a lot of times, right? And this isn't necessarily that, but you know, kids need to realize that everything's not, you know, cupcakes, unicorns, and rainbows. And the thing is there's I think there's lots of teaching moments within that, and for me anyway, as a parent. Like I'm not saying this is for everybody. But I think there's a lot of teaching moments in movies like this that you can teach and understand what kids can learn, like where rage comes from, what what happens when you do say awful things to someone over and over again. What you're, you know, there's lots of great teaching moments in there. I, I do think so, and I think it's just to me, it's the development of a character, and it shows you like what you know, understanding what other people's perspectives of what people go through and what why they might react the way they or you might if you see someone at school. You know, act a certain way. There might be something. There's might be something relatable to this. Not exactly like this, but something like this. There's lots of great teaching moments in here, and that's what makes art so special. Whether it be commercial art or this super underground, you know, independent art or what have you, art teaches you about people and it can teach you about life. And that, to me, at least, I, I how I get out of it. It's not always entertainment. It's about. That's why I love themes in these films. And I think that moment where Rocket reacts is so important to the character that you just, I'm glad Disney and Marvel didn't put the handcuffs on the film and go, we can't, it's a little too far. Like, no, no, there has to be a realistic approach. I think to these characters that kids grow, you know, as they're growing up with them. I mean, that's the thing I think star Wars has really proved Sean. I think more than anything as a franchise for, you know, for kids that when you do these sequel films and everything, that like a lot of times they grow up with these characters. And I think it's important that we we keep up the 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 uh, significance and I think the importance and of these characters by having these these real moments like that. And I think that that to me is what makes Marvel and makes Star Wars and these other these other franchises that I love so much so important is that it never strays away from the, the humanity of the characters and doesn't dumb it down for the audience. And I think that's where James Gunn has flourished and it makes it so more impressive that he's done it. So he does these weird things, but it makes it so relatable for the mainstream audience. And yeah, I, I don't, I love, I love that moment. It was very real, very raw. You, you feel it, you feel it with them. And I think it's so important for the characters. So yeah, I, I love, I love that moment because you see, and, and again, we're, I, we see it telegraphed in the movie. You see the high evolutionary's face is taped to his like his his skeleton body or whatever his skeleton um, body or mechanical body that he's got. You see that you you automatically know that face has been put over, and he's hiding something underneath it that he's trying to he's trying again. It's a whole symbolism of he is embodying like 
I want to, you know, he says a line in the movie, right? Sean, where he says, you know, there's no God. That's why I had to intervene. But he's trying to present this, this, this godlike image when really there's humanity underneath him, right? And there's this great symbolism of that right there. And I love that about that, that, that rocket is a person that it basically makes him realize that he is not God. He is, in fact, a human being hiding the skeleton and the blood underneath himself. I just, there's a beauty to that, that I think that James Gunn nailed in this movie. The origin of Rocket and the high evolutionary to me is so critical to this movie. It's 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 a whole movie, obviously, that he nails 100% that like it'll always be top tier Marvel, you know, storyline, talent, film because of that alone. So yeah, it's it's incredible. And you if you didn't have that, I don't think you, you'd lose everything credible about this movie, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it would have lost everything, but I, I think that's what elevates it though and that it certainly adds to look it adds to the authenticity there's value in it in that storytelling as difficult as and disturbing as it may be look it's supposed to you're not it's supposed to be that way you're not supposed to be happy about that scene you're not supposed to have enjoyed that scene or had fun with it like you do and in, in other scenes in this movie and certainly a lot of other scenes with uh with the guardians of the galaxy but i think that was it was something that we were kind of in many ways just happy to not know like okay we understand that that rocket has a traumatic past we see the evidence of it and that's all we really need to see and maybe there's an argument that that's all anybody ever needed to see but i think if you're going to continue the story you are ultimately going to have when you continue on with characters inevitably you have them confront certain things about their past and obviously with rocket that takes it to these types of uh, these types of spaces but as i said it, it's not it's not all about what's haunting and traumatic about it. It is all there is some there's very positive things that you learn about Rocket throughout that process and things that endure, even things that he didn't think had endured, even things that he thought he had lost in those moments, an ability to love, an ability to connect, his optimism and, and all of those things. He probably saw himself as a cynic and has seen himself as a cynic the rest of, of his life, or at least until maybe some of those events in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So for years of his life, he had given up with, he had thought he had given up on that version of himself that was just having fun playing game, uh, playing games and choosing names and stuff with his friends inside their cages. He thought that part of him was gone, that it died alongside, uh, that it died alongside his friends, but it didn't. And it was still there. And, and it was still fighting for space within him and even being able to kind of override a lot of the cynicism and, and a lot of that pain that informed him going forward. Um, and that's seeing the source of that from the very beginning with Rocket, I thought was incredibly valuable to show with that character. And then speaking of the high evolutionary, and, and yeah, we we knew something happened, right? We knew that because we were his face wasn't stretched out over anything in the flashback sequences, but it was in the present day sequences. So Inevitably, that was going to have to be Rocket being the source of that. But I love what it says about the High Evolutionary just as a character for somebody who portrays himself as being basically a god, as as you said, Paul. Like I, you know, there was no god. That's why I stepped in and positioning himself in that way and acting like he's trying to perfect the universe while literally masking his own physical flaws. 
um, to speak nothing of having to mask some of his own emotional or intellectual flaws. Like, yeah, it really did bother him. Yes, there's a part of him that was impressed that Rocket was capable of invention, unlike any of his other creations. But there was also a very petty part of the high evolutionary that was upset that Rocket figured something out that he couldn't. And if you need to know how petty the high evolutionary is, look no further than when he gets on a step stool to be at even height with the high priestess Aisha of the Sovereign. Like, he can't bear to look up at her. He can't bear to have to look up at his creation. He has to be able to look down, or at worst, at even height with the high priestess Aisha, has to be able to demean her, put her down in some way, even if that means giving himself... I laughed out loud. Hey, even, yeah, even giving... A lot of people did when I... Both times I saw the movie, because it is silly. And you should be laughing at him in that moment because it is so incredibly petty. For se- But that's that's true of uh, an abuser in, in many ways. That's true of somebody like that, that a lot of it is about power. A lot of it is about inflating a sense of power that they don't feel like they really genuinely have. So they have to manipulate the situation in their favor. And it's all about making people believe in their power and making sure that those people believe all what they must do above all else is please that abuser. All of those things were were very, very true. And, and I think part of what were just very authentic aspects of the high evolutionary as a character that I think humanize that character, not in a, a positive way, humanize that character in, in a very negative way of showing this is what this is. Like, yeah, this guy is is very powerful. He's a genius. He's all of these things. But deep down, he's just this really, really petty guy who needs to feel a sense of power over things uh, and get it however he can. And Shakuti Awuji was incredible in this movie as we kind of start to transition from backstory into into present day events in this movie i would say probably i mean it's only been two uh, only two viewings but probably my favorite antagonist of the guardians of the three guardians movies and I, look i'm a big fan of ego big fan of ronan but i thought the high evolutionary was an incredible character in this movie a a brilliant antagonist and in terms of the performance I love the moments that that I think people would easily love in in terms of the most, uh, the high points, the maniacal villain moments, the screaming moments for the high evolutionary as an antagonist, where he's at his most diabolical and and all of those things. Yes, all of that stuff is is great, and Shakuri Awuji is great at playing that character when he's dialed up to 11 or 25 or wherever, dialed way, way, way up. But... Really, where I, I think the best acting, where the best performance comes in is, or it's the combination of those things, that he's 100% authentic and believable in those moments, those high points. But when he just drops it low into things that are more subtle, that are more nuanced, that is where I, I think he's at his core. Like that's, that's how effective I thought he was as an actor in this movie is, as I said, I wanted to believe those moments could be real. The moments where it really felt like more of a a peer-to-peer conversation, or maybe not peer-to-peer, parent-to-son sort of conversation between the high evolutionary and Rocket, I wanted to believe that those moments were real. Because on some level, for brief moments, and this doesn't justify or rationalize or make anything okay that the high evolutionary did, I do think in those moments, the high evolutionary genuinely felt 
impressed by, connected to, felt that approval of Rocket and, and all of those things. It's just those things don't matter to him long term. In the moment, that's fine. Yes, it's very impressive. I like that you appreciate music. I like that you can look at that ship flying out in the sky and know that that's a rocket. I like that you can have these equations. I like that you can invent things. I like that you can come up with things and whatever. There, He can genuinely be impressed, but then also it just doesn't matter. Like None of that stuff matters for any longer than the moment that he says it, that the moment that that experience lasts. And then it goes back to what the high evolutionary believes is his greater purpose and all of those things. As he said, you know, you're here as, you know, you're a stepping stone. You're a step on my path. This is all that you're here to do is you're to, you're help me to get, you're here to help me create the creatures that actually matter is one of the, the lines that he says, paraphrasing a, a, a bit there. I think Shikuri, that's what makes him such a chilling villain though, is he can't, he was capable of displaying some warmth, but it ne- it was never actually real, and it certainly was never going to last. At his core was the evil that we saw in so many of, of the other scenes, but the fact that Chikuri Awuji had, or not fact, my opinion on the matter, the point that uh, that he was so believable, that he felt so real in all of those moments, as, as different as they were, as in as stark of a contrast as there was between these different moments of how the high evolutionary was behaving and all of it felt so true to whoever this person was as despicable and petty and evil as he was, that is a testament to the performance. And, and look, James Gunn, he taught, I mean, I thought uh, Chikuri Uji was great in Peacemaker. I thought he was amazing in that. And obviously James Gunn was, was impressed enough by that to want to bring him on for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And I just remember James Gunn on social media just singing the praises of his performance in Volume 3. Just wait until you see this performance. And look, um, James Gunn, no wonder he felt perfectly so comfortable hyping up this performance because it was every bit as good as advertised and and even better. Um, Just amazing. And, And I'm I'm happy this character doesn't have a definitive death in this movie. I mean, he's left alive and his ship explodes, but we don't know where he's at by the time. And a lot of time elapses between when the Guardians leave him behind and when the ship explodes. So anything could have happened to that character could very easily be back at some point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and I would be happy to see him come back. I know there's probably no story that's going to resonate emotionally and in, in quite, although Rocket's story is continuing, but I, I know Rocket for the most part, got to settle his business with the High Evolutionary. But if they want to find another space for this character somewhere else in the MCU, um, they were they are welcome to do it, and it would be the better for it, because what an incredible performance we saw in this movie. And if we got to see more of that in a future MCU project, I'd be thrilled. Awuji blew me away. Like you, I liked him in Peacemaker. I mean, I don't think, I didn't think he was like over-crazily amazing in the, in the, in the, in the, in the role, but he was good. I mean, he was good for what he was great for what it was. And when James Gunn, you know, continued him into, you know, as high evolutionary, I was like, that's interesting. You know, I thought he was a good actor, liked him in the role and saw the trailers. Didn't again, I've I've really quickly go in the costume. Uh, I, I I do love the original uh, high evolutionary costume, and I, I it just didn't I didn't like how he wa- they walked him out into you know San Diego Comic Con and I thought that was a bad a bad way to get introduce us to the character look because it looked better under CGI 
<clears throat> to be honest, Sean, I, I thought the, the 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 nuances of the practical with combined with the, with the CGI was perfect. He looked great on screen. I thought he moved great on screen. I thought the characterization that we saw was incredible. The High Evolutionary is a very complex, weird villain in the, in the regular, regular 616 universe comic books. And this is such a more compelling, interesting character. And I loved everything we got from him. Awuji blew me away. And like you said, I, you know, I, I echo, echo everything you said about this character. He, he blew me away of being able to, to make you sympathetic and like, oh, yeah, like he's having a moment with Rocket to like being straight up evil. You want yep. this man to die a horrible death and and making you believe that and doing a great job of that. And I love the whole I am God, but not really God. And I, I did like that. I, I love the story that they, they've built up for him a little bit. Like he's kind of this cosmic entrepreneur, if you will, like, like a entrepreneur slash, uh, creator. Uh, there's something very fascinating that I thought that James Gunn built with this character that they definitely, to me, obviously nobody not dead. Right. We all agree with that. That's just the rules of the, of the game. Um, and it's comic books slash comic book movies, whatever. Um, they built this up enough to where there's a, there's a rich backstory there. You know, um, Howard the Duck could be created by the High Evolutionary, for all we know. Um, and what all anything animal related in the MCU going forward could be all tied back into the High Evolutionary. Well, more Hell. than just animals, though, because they talked about, I mean, he created the Sovereign as well. Like he, exactly. cre he created entire civilizations, entire groups of people. And so... We, we know there's another big group of people that's about to enter the MCU, right? So, like, there are ways mm -hmm. to tie him into, uh, to weave this character, if they want to. I'm not saying this is what they're doing, what they're planning on doing, that this is what anyone even cares to do. But if they want to go even deeper with just how they weave this character through the fabric of the MCU, they can totally do it. And yeah. I, I could imagine the temptation would be very, very strong to utilize this character elsewhere because you already know what the actor is capable of in terms of the performance. And, and yeah, there's certainly enough that's hinted at here um, to to make the audience crave that, that further exploration. And maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, but at least the opportunity is is clearly there if anybody wants to, to take advantage of it. And yeah, right. I think that character just... It was so good, and, and the performance just uh, just unbelievable. I mean, a huge revelation, and I, I think that's something that, uh, yeah, I, I, and I love that James Gunn saw that, because, yeah, you, you don't see yeah. this character in Peacemaker, right? And, and so that's James Gunn as a director, just seeing an actor, just knowing a guy's got it, like knowing that somebody is that good, that when you want to go to these other places with this character, that he's going to be able to take it there and even go even even further than I, I'm sure whatever James Gunn's expectations were, were probably exceeded with what he saw on set because of, you know, this performance really just was that good. And, and it's weird to have a villain like that who could be so awful and do such some of the most horrific things we've seen a villain do in the MCU and yet still be a compelling character to watch. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that's a... Uh, that's a pretty neat trick, um, and I, I think High Evolutionary, yeah, one of the better antagonists already in yep. uh, in the MCU, MCU. And, and certainly yeah. within, uh, specific to the Guardians of uh, franchise, I think probably the best uh, so far, at least 
the, right now on, on yeah. upon two viewings I, I reserve the right to change my mind because i do love ronan and ego but man the high evolutionary was was something else uh I, in this movie yeah and the last thing i'll say about e or uh, about high evolutionary is that i think the performance alone warrants him coming back like i think he'll come if he he's gonna come back and it'll be because of wuji alone like i think I just, anyone else yeah, yeah. I don't think they left him alive for no reason. I mean, at, at the same mm -hmm. time, like again, if James Gunn wanted to kill him, they could have done it. But I, I think the fact that it was part of Rocket's journey, and look, that that was a beautiful part of it, right? In terms of the resolution, the High Evolutionary was the one who compelled Rocket to choose violence, and so with a final opportunity to confront the High Evolutionary, and as vulnerable as the High Evolutionary has ever been. There's Rocket having that choice again to choose violence against the high evolutionary or not. And that time he chooses not. So that's Rocket's cycle of violence started with the high evolutionary. And I wouldn't say it ended because we see him battling at the end of this movie or even in the mid credit scene. So violence is not over for Rocket. But that moment in, in having where, where it is a choice, it's not... An immediate battle. There's not a need to defend himself or anyone else. The High Evolutionary is down. He's defeated. And Rocket has an opportunity to end him if he wants to, but Rocket chooses something else. Even with that, though, I mean, I, I think it was definitely the right creative storytelling character arc decision, totally the right move to have Rocket choose not to kill the High Evolutionary and, and pass on that opportunity. There could have there could have been another thing to it. Like what sometimes happens when they don't want to have the hero kill off the villain and get into the moral and ethical murkiness of, of that. You can do the other thing where the villain dies anyway. Like the hero didn't choose to kill him, but then we see that he dies in, in some other fashion or one of the other characters could have come up and killed him or whatever the case may be. They don't do that in this movie. And I, I feel like I don't, again, I don't think they asked James Gunn or said, James, you have to keep this guy alive, but they're probably really glad that James Gunn did, um, and we're happy to show, I mean, the way they cut it, there's so much space between when he's when they walk away from him versus when the ship explodes that, yeah, theoretically, he's totally alive in, in my book, and so I, I feel like if he's still out there, there's going to be an opportunity to bring this character back into the fold at some point, and, and you're not going to want, there, there's... You're not going to not want it. You're totally going to want more of that performance. I know I do as a fan, and I'm sure that the, the storytellers at Marvel Studios, whether it's the people who are already there or writers and directors they may hire in the future, they're going to look at this performance and say, yeah, I want to bring some of that into my movie or my Disney Plus series or whatever uh, it may be. So I, I totally think that's going to happen. Now let's turn our attention toward the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Wow, we're an hour and a half into this podcast, and uh, we've mainly been talking about Rocket, but hey, it was uh, his story all along, and we're not done talking about Rocket. We'll get into, uh, we'll get into his present-day stuff in this story when we catch up to it, but what's been happening this whole time uh, while we've been going through Rocket's backstory? Well, now, Paul, you finally get to talk about it. Um, so after we go through the the intro with Rocket walking around nowhere, we see that Peter Quill has uh, is still not dealing well with the loss of uh, with the loss of Gamora. He's just uh, drinking away the pain, passing out. We know Drax even makes the comment again, so we know this has been a, a fairly regular occurrence on Nowhere of how Peter is uh, is dealing with all of this, and. 
I, I do a, a really touching moment though is I know a lot of others the rest of the group seems to be very annoyed with uh, with Peter Quill and, and how regular of a thing this is. I love that Groot's response is just worry. That Groot, when Groot sees uh, Peter being carried out by Nebula, that he just goes over totally worried and, and just wanting Peter to be okay. And it, it, look, it's perfectly fine for Peter's friends to be annoyed by this, um, but also perfectly reasonable for Groot to just continue to be compassionate and caring and just wanting to know that Peter Quill is okay. But everybody's about to not be okay because as we start to hear crazy on you, we see a figure flying through space. And uh, my genuine first reaction to that shot was, this is one of the coolest first shots I have ever seen for a character being introduced in the MCU. Yep. I, the music, the, as I said, look, Pound for pound, I think maybe the best cinematography in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And this intro to Adam Warlock was a huge, huge part of it. It just looked gorgeous. It made him look special. It made him look like a big deal. And I don't know that the story, rest of the story held true to treating him like a big deal, but we'll, we'll get to that as we, as we go along here. But this, init- this initial intro to Adam Warlock as he attacks on Nowhere... I thought it did a great job. I mean, Will Poulter was, uh, I thought, outstanding in this movie, did a great job. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not totally in love with every choice that was made creatively in terms of what he was asked to do, but that's separate from his performance. His performance was outstanding. But this introduction, just in terms of the raw power of Adam Warlock, yeah, they, they totally sold that. I mean, it goes back to the Albert and Landmine run, Dan Abnett, Andy Landing, when he becomes like the, the Magus and he just tears apart the Guardians of the Galaxy. That's what this scene felt like as he just goes through. He just rips right through them on nowhere, initially attacking Rocket, beating up Nebula, going after Drax. I mean, uh, and just I mean, the savage way just breaks Mantis's wrist like it's all just so heavy and impactful. And the the action in this, I mean, I. I think throughout, in terms of superhero movie action, also some of the best stuff that we have yeah. seen in and outside of the MCU throughout this movie, including this sequence that I thought was just awesome. And I, I love that it's also, it's character focused too, like in terms of characters going through their pain and going through their process and the, re- the regret that they experience. The fact that Peter Quill is sleeping it off, you know, and still drunk when this attack happens and that Peter Quill doesn't get to be the best version of himself when his friends need him most and how that informs his uh, portion of this story, all of it was so well done. And that, that's it. I mean, that's where I think it's, that's when it's done at its best in these movies is when you have really, really great awe inspiring action. That's just great to look at, but at the same time you are informing character and and everybody kind of gets that moment uh, in their own battle with Adam Warlock, and again, just in terms of a showcase of Adam Warlock, introducing him as a brand new character in the MCU, it could not have looked or been executed, I think, any better than this. Well, so, the thing with Adam Warlock, and I'm just going to say it right now, he's my favorite character in this movie, outside of Rocket. Wow. I loved Adam Warlock. That, that is mm-hmm. surprising to me. <clears throat> now, there's a couple reasons why. Um... Adam Warlock in the comics is such a stoic character. Right. And I, it was hard for me to think how that's going to portray in this story. 
the it's especially how they put them i just knowing how they set them up in the sequel on the volume two into this because i had no idea the high evolutionary created everybody and what i liked about this was that i, I love the choices i i don't know why but coulter's will coulter's um poulter with a p poulter, poulter, yeah, see yeah, you know me my, my names <laughs> will poulter um he does such a phenomenal job as warlock dude yeah. i i i just the deadpan it feels like the, the, it's it almost feels like they wanted to go for that drax kind of stupid that whole stupidity thing but the the difference is that there is there is a the compassion to him that i thought that will did a great job portraying that you see there and there is that stoicness that he just has that but you know this kind of he's kind of dumb but they i to, to me, all the problems are all set up in the in the very simple dialogue of that he was wa- he was awakened too early. Sure, and, and that to me justified the characterization because there is the seeds were there. He's powerful, and I think that they do a great job of of portraying that that he's just not quite full baked, if you will. And I think that that to me justifies, and, and I'm I'm okay with with the direction they went because I think I could see. Poulter doing a great job as a stoic that, that it's there. You can see it's there. And I think there's a great, there's going to be a great turn for this character to be that, that stoicness because there, you saw everything. His mom gets destroyed and you get, you know, he, he doesn't have anything to really live for outside of this, you know, going, you know, going forward at, besides when he joins the guardians. And to me, it's all, it's a great setup for the character because I think they're they're what well, they're gonna be they're, to me it feels like the Marvel's gonna be doing more cosmic stuff in the future with Fantastic Four coming up and the and the whole multiverse uh thing wrapping up eventually. You're gonna have, I think, the whole like the I, I talked about the Game of Thrones aspect, and then now I think you're gonna have the continuing adventures of the cosmic world that I think is definitely resonating with an audience right now. Um I think to me, Warlock Adam Warlock does a great is going to be a pivotal part of that going forward. When we see like the scrolls and, and the Marvels and all that stuff be developing going forward, I think you're going to have Adam Warlock be front and center, and you're going to have an established character of you can have him do those humorous moments, and it's going to feel very, very natural. And but you're going to see the development of that stoicness. And that dark side, that I think they could go, which I'm not sure. I'm, I'd be fine if they don't. They avoid Magus, Magus, whatever his name is. Um, I going think forward. I think they've already covered that ground with what they gave us in this story. Like I, I think exactly, evil Adam Warlock is uh, is done at, at this point. Like I, I don't think you need to necessarily go in another direct, go back in that direction with it. So yeah, I, I think as far as I, I might as well get into it now because uh, since we're on the subject of Adam Warlock, but yeah, eh, I liked a lot of the deadpan stuff. Like I, I loved it in this scene, like the the bit with Craglin's arrow and just like glancing off his face and then just being like, "Who threw that?" and or whatever you know, "Who threw that at me?" Whatever it was, like that part I thought was really funny, and that certainly kind of sets the stage for what we're going to see from the character. They they did explain it as, as far as why he acts like he does and, and all of those things. They they had their in-story rationale of the high evolutionary took him out of the pod too early, as Aisha explains. And so all of that's uh all of that's well and good. And look, 
I can't uh, I can't lie. I was entertained by Adam Warlock, and I was laughing at a lot of the stuff that they were doing with him, stuff they meant to be funny, not laughing at it in, in a way that it wasn't meant to be. I guess they're still just, to some extent, I, I agree that they couldn't go full stoic Adam Warlock because that just gets boring after a while. And you can't, you can't sell an audience on, hey, in the comics, this guy's stoic, so that's why he's like this all the time in this movie. Like, if it's not, inter- if it's not interesting or entertaining, then it's not going to be interesting or entertaining. So, and I, I think in a movie like Guardians, it's really hard to have a character be so completely stoic and still feel at home there and, and still, I mean, you could say, well, maybe the the fact that it's such an opposite is what would make it interesting or compelling, but there was maybe just a little bit too much of, like, the deadpan silliness that it just got, it's not that I don't like it, I do like it quite a bit, it just maybe got laid on a little too thick uh, for, for my taste at some points in the movie, but when I say that, I mean, I'm not even, I wouldn't even go so far as to call it a flaw because it, it's just, it's a choice. There's nothing wrong with the choice. They set up the choice. Um, that's purely a preference thing. And my preference isn't even really all that misaligned with it because I do, I love a lot of what they did and I like the character. And look, I'm I'm on board and I'm into this character as a new member of the Guardians of the Galaxy going forward at the end of this movie. So mission accomplished in, in all the most important ways for Adam Warlock in this movie for me. It's just in terms of preference that maybe some of the deadpan humor, maybe some of those impacts, uh, maybe some of those aspects didn't have to be emphasized quite as much as they were throughout this movie. It's really more of just where it lands on the dial in this movie versus maybe where I would have said it, which just really doesn't matter uh, as far as that stuff is concerned. So it's so minor for me. It is not something that would, you know, if I actually graded these movies, which I don't, but if I, I mean, there must be some system at how I arrive at, a, at what's a Marvel masterpiece versus what isn't. But if there was any sort of scoring system, we're not even talking about any significant deductions as far as just to try and provide some perspective of where I'm at on this. It's not it's not something I, I hate or even dislike or anything like that. It's just maybe some things that could have been dialed back a little yeah. bit, similar to the way that there are certain moments with Drax and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 that I thought could have been dialed back a little bit to uh, to help that yeah. character out. But overall, still really, really liked and enjoyed Adam Warlock and thought this was a really great sequence. Yeah, I I, I like the character. I, I really have much to say about Adam himself, other than I love... I just love where he went, where they got him to, and I love that he's on the team going forward. I think that he is going that the the lineup at the end of this movie, I think is is really intriguing, really intriguing. Yes, it, it, I, I just yeah, there there this is that could be to me almost more entertaining than the one we have now. I, I'm just gonna say it right now. I think there's there's so much potential with that lineup. I, and, and who they eventually add on eventually, which I think Nova is eventually going to be on there. Um, it's there's so much good stuff there that I think that it, it, it's going to be, and that's cool about Guardians going forward. It's it's going to be a different iteration, so you can continue the franchise and the branding without having to be like you're going back to the well because everyone's now is established like oh it's a different Guardians team like the Avengers you know when Avengers eventually does that as well. It's great. They set it up perfectly in this movie. James Gunn gave him a gift, in my opinion, with that. So 
yeah, I can't wait to see what Adam Warlock does on this team. Yeah, same. I'm very excited about it. And I thought with that character, again, they did gave him a good arc within this movie. And that's the part that I think is, you know, the best aspect of it is, yeah, he's look, he's wanting to he's wanting to please his mother in terms of what she's wanting him to do, because obviously he cares very much about his mother. He doesn't necessarily care about pleasing the high evolutionary other than to try and protect his mother from the high evolutionary. So I think they do a good job kind of balancing his motivations, but then even giving him that arc all that culminates when he's saved by Groot. Like I tried to kill you. Like I ripped your head off. Like why would you try to save me? And and the way that affects him to where he joins the big group hug at the end that sets him up being part of the team moving forward. I thought all of that, those aspects of it, which to me are the most, that's the most important stuff is the emotional arc that he got to go on in this movie. That was very satisfying and and very well uh, played, of course, by Will Poulter. And in terms of uh, getting into kind of our our core guardians of Star-Lord, a.k.a. Peter Quill, Nebula, Mantis, Drax, Groot, and of course Gamora is there as well, although not as a member of the Guardians, as a member of the Ravagers, who is a, a guest star for the Guardians on their mission, because now they have to save Rocket, but they can't. Uh, and that's what Peter Quill's feeling guilty about is in his efforts to try and save Rocket. He actually ends up making matters worse because there's proprietary software and needs a passcode and all this stuff in order to override a kill switch that will destroy Rocket if they try to save him from his injuries. But obviously, if they can't save him from his injuries, he's going to die of those injuries. So they have to figure out, they have to go and get the information they need in order to be able to save Rocket. I did like that moment of Peter Quill kind of having to reckon with the role that he played. And look, the team the team does a good job supporting him and saying like this, how could you know that we were about to be attacked and all of these things? So not everybody is at their best and, and ready and ready and prepared to go on the defensive and have to save a member of the team. Obviously, that doesn't fully appease Peter and his uh, the guilt that he feels of not being at his best. But I don't know that I don't know that Peter Quill would have made a, a better or different choice, even if he were sober in that moment. I mean, how could he have known that uh, the technology within Rocket would uh, would stop him from being properly treated for any injuries that he might suffer. There's no way that anybody on the team could have really known that um, in that moment. But I think for Peter Quill and and his journey in this movie, and I think maybe that's kind of how we'll we'll move through it, <laughs> is talking about uh, since we went kind of gone one character at a time, might as well stick with it. So Peter Quill in this, I, I thought... I really like this. Well, let me get the one um, complaint out of the way. And, and Paul, you're probably this is one where I I, I got to believe you and I are on the same page on this. Um, and a, a completely 100 percent helmetless Star Lord in a Guardians movie is, is not my favorite thing. Um, I love the helmet. Yes, thank you. I, I love thank the helmet. You. It's cool as hell. And especially in the moment where they try. I mean. One of the moments that I'm more critical of is when they try to make it look like Peter Quill's about to die, even though he's totally not going to die. Um, when a helmet would have helped protect him in that moment, like, and you could say, well, the helmet's not part of that uniform. How could the helmet not be part of his full time uniform? Amen. Like, it just it doesn't. It's nanotechnology. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's it's not like cumbersome for Peter Quill to have it. So I appreciate wanting to show Chris Pratt's face throughout the entirety of the movie 
And, you know, I know uh, James Gunn, I saw when he was replying to fans on Twitter and, and look, I'm not knocking James Gunn at all. I think it's actually very generous of him that he spends so much time uh, answering fans questions on Twitter. And also credit to James Gunn for actually in the special thanks of this movie also included all the fans exclamation mark in the special thanks to this movie. I don't know if anybody's ever thanked us in the credits of a Marvel movie before or superhero movies or whatever. Maybe that's happened. I don't know. This is the first time I've noticed it. And that was really, really sweet of, of James Gunn to do. But, you know, he talked about how, like, the big kind of hallway fight sequence, you know, that Peter Quill, they wouldn't have been able to do all, like, Chris Pratt wouldn't have been able to do all those, those things. They wouldn't have been able to do all those things if he had the helmet on. And I, I'd say, okay, that's fine. That's fair if he doesn't have the helmet on for that sequence. But at least when he's jumping into space, have him put on his helmet. Uh, that would have been a, a nice uh, opportunity for it to have. I know... It would have made it hard, if not impossible, to sell the idea that he was about to die. But I never believed for a second that Peter Quill was going to die in that moment because they hadn't set up his death at all in the movie up until uh, up until that point, which is why that's kind of one of the moments that I'm more critical of is that that, that was one moment that didn't feel as authentic to me because there was no reason there was no setup for Peter Quill making some sacrifice. And I knew he wasn't going to die stranded in space because even though I think the only thing that got me thinking for half a second is when they started bloating his face in that moment. But I knew that like Adam Warlock or somebody was going to come in for a save because there was no way Peter Quill was going to die because he took a second to go back and get a Zune. Like there was no way that was going to be the reason why the up until that moment, the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy was not going to survive this story. I just didn't think that that was going to happen. And I was really thinking at that moment, just like, why doesn't he have his helmet on? He, there are moments in the movie where he could have had it on and should have had it on, and that was certainly one of them, only to sell, to try and sell the idea that he was going to die, and he, it just it wasn't going to happen. But anyway, I digress. Well, Paul, I'll let you get your, your shots in on, on, uh, no, on No Helmet Gate for, uh, Thank you. for, for Star-Lord. We'll get into the rest of his character arc, which I actually think is really, really great in this movie. But um, yeah, it, it's a cool helmet. He should have worn it. Yeah, I, I do think it's odd that they did. Well, let's 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 be real here. I, I Chris Pratt probably want to see his show his face the entire time. I, I I'm I'm assuming that's where this I, all comes from. I, I don't want to assume that like this was uh, an actor choice. I really don't because I I honestly think Chris Pratt like that's a guy who went to bat for James Gunn when James Gunn got fired. If James Gunn was like dude, I really want you to wear the helmet because it looks cool and I, I need it in this scene. There's no way Pratt's refusing to do it. I, I, I genuinely don't believe yeah. that. I, I think this was a full-on creative like story choice to that that what I don't believe it was actor-motivated. Maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, may, may James <laughs> Gunn tell on Chris Pratt on Twitter. But I don't actually think uh, that's what... I, I don't think that's what it is. I, I think it was just... He barely wears the helmet anyway, so let's who who cares if we don't show it at all? Well, we care over here at the MCU fan show. We want the helmet, right? Yeah. Well, and I personally, I, I just think that it was just weird because he's worn it in every other movie, but this one. Yep. It's just very odd, and it just it was an odd choice. It, it, like again, when he was in space, he could have had it to save his life. It's like you know, oh, he doesn't have his helmet. Like, what happened to it? He's like he decided it was like not necessary. It just. It felt very convenient. I mean, he and used that helmet to save Gamora when they were stranded in space exactly. on nowhere the first time. Like, why wouldn't he use it, it to save it, himself? Ah! It's so frustrating, man. It's so frustrating. I don't, I don't get it. 
I don't get it. Oh, anyway, well. I, I, I'm done with that. I'm done yeah, with that. we've 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 made our point. Uh, so yes. moving on to the stuff that yes matters more, but still helmets matter a lot. Costumes are are important. Um, look, the the emotional arc for Peter Quill I thought was really good in this movie, and and I think that. This was tough, I think. And this might have been one of the more difficult parts, although I, I don't know what parts James Gunn would have found the most difficult as he was writing and directing this movie. But this, in theory, seems pretty difficult to me. Like, to have to go so heavy in terms of delivering the story for Rocket and dedicating so much time to his backstory. And by the very nature of that, just because you know time's not unlimited on this, these things. I know this is a longer Guardians movie, but at the same time, it's not like it's some three-and-a-half-hour film that you spend this much time dedicated to Rocket's backstory. How do you also deliver compelling emotional arcs for the other members of the team? And I think Star-Lord as the leader, you would figure, would probably still be well-served, but I think everybody was, but specific to Star-Lord for, for a little while longer here, I think they did a really good job of setting up what his real end of the story was, going back to Earth and hanging out with his grandfather. I thought all of that was so well done, even in the stuff that wasn't working out for Peter Quill, even in the stuff that maybe would have been harder for him to hear. Like the fact that he doesn't get to, by the end of this movie, he hasn't rekindled a relationship with Gamora. And actually, he couldn't rekindle it because that's not the Gamora that he was with. And so there's that line where she says, like, I don't know what it is in you that makes you, like, need to see something or have something in me um, as he just keeps trying to cling to this relationship he had with the Gamora that was thrown off the magical cliff, as he explains with the whole summary of it in this movie. And then when Drax, you know, Mantis by way of Drax, you know, when she gives Drax the analogy of the of the lily pad, of you've just jumped from lily pad to lily pad and it's time for you to swim... And Peter actually says that makes sense because it totally does. I think what Peter has found in his journey, and it's been important, it's been very helpful to him, is that through his relationships with others, and of course largely through his relationship with Gamora, that's how he's gone on this path of of self-discovery. That's how he's gone on this path of, of healing his own trauma and realizing the the things within himself that he needs to work on. But there's still an aspect of him that, that's kind of been ignored is always having to lean on others, uh, literally be supported by others, you know, standing on, jumping on from one lily pad to the, to the next to try and find some form of stability where, as if he just learned to swim, he wouldn't, or was just swimming, he wouldn't necessarily need to have that all the time. He would be able to fend for himself a, a, a little bit more. And, and part of the reason that he hasn't is there's just aspects of himself that that he's denied for various reasons and i think in the way that rocket was denying various parts of his life because it was rooted in trauma that's also been a big part of it for peter quill i mean we know the the whole first movie is him kind of still working on coming to terms with his mother's death and he still hasn't fully come to terms with it i mean a huge leap forward in the first guardians of the galaxy movie but the fact that he hasn't gone home the fact that, especially like he didn't, he was already on Earth in Avengers Endgame at the end of that. Like he didn't want to swing by and, and see if his grandpa was still around. The fact that he didn't take that moment when he was back on Earth for the first time in a couple decades, he didn't, or a few decades, he didn't take that moment, that opportunity to go try and visit whatever part of his family was left, especially his grandfather. 
that was an, an that's another aspect of Peter Quill avoiding it. That's another way that Peter Quill is yes, he did he came to much better terms with the loss of his mother, but he wasn't fully there because that's why he wouldn't go see his family because that's what reminds him of the loss of his mother. And of course, subsequently the other losses that he's suffered since then, that's kind of what his home has represented. Whereas Mantis is trying to help enlighten him, like that's where you have family. And that's family you know. That's not just family that we're telling you exists. Like he was eight years old when he left Earth. That's old enough to know and remember who his grandpa was. And and I like the I, I like hearing Peter's perspective on it, because we go back to that very first scene in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and I didn't see it the way that Peter did. But Peter was eight years old and his mother just died, so that's why his perception of it is different. It was his grandpa who carried him out of the room and told him to stay there, but he didn't really scream in Peter's face, but that's Peter's memory of it. As I was eight years old, my mom just died and my grandpa screamed in my face. I don't know that... I I think for Peter, that probably was his perception or his distorted memory of it, but I also think at the same time, he's fed that as part of giving himself that excuse for not going home because of what that means in terms of what he would face. But for Peter Quill to go through, I mean, what he's going through in terms of his loss with Gamora and being in a healthy place to move forward with that by the end of this movie, like I thought it was really great in terms of that, uh, you know, acknowledging their relationship and the fun that they had together, but also accepting that this Gamora is not going to be the one that he knew, is not going to be the one that he fell in love with. That is over, that is gone, and Peter Quill has to move on, even if they can both kind of know that maybe there was something between them, because in another timeline, there has been something between them. Uh, Peter Quill moving on from that space and then just kind of going back and, and embracing his life before all of this started, I think is a really great step for that character in, in terms of his journey. But then also just other stuff about Peter Quill in this, you know, stepping up as a leader, kind of being almost the most compassionate member of the team, certainly more compassionate than uh, this iteration of Gamora that we are seeing in this one, uh, not being quite as violent as that version of Gamora. Um, and and then, of course, I mean, Chris Pratt, I, I got to give him credit in his performance throughout this movie, but especially the moment where, you know, it looks like Rocket is going to die, like we see him in this, you know, heavenly space, talking to Lila, seeing his other friends, and it looks like he's going to go, but then Lila says not yet. But it's uh, it's back where we see Peter Quill working on him, like, I'm not going to let him go, and uh, and saving Rocket. Like, that moment, I thought Pratt's performance was, I mean, I know it's an emotional high point that in some ways you could say that's easier to do. Not always, and in that moment, I, I don't think it's, uh, that particular moment, I don't think was was an easy one to portray and I, I think he was right there with it. So I thought Pratt gave uh, a really great performance. I mean, he's been great as Star-Lord this whole time, in my view, um, but gave uh, another terrific performance this time. But I really love the choices with this character and and where we see him at the end. And a great scene with Greg Henry back as his, as his grandfather. Uh, their reunion yeah. at the end of this was very, very touching. And so I, I love it. When we talk about characters having to confront their past in order to move forward. Here's Peter Quill finally doing that for himself uh, in this moment with uh, with his grandfather that I thought was was really great. And, yeah, and the post-credit scene was a nice touch of now he's going to be mowing lawns because a full-grown son of a neighbor uh, won't actually uh, won't do that. All of that stuff is, is great. Also, great, great newspaper headline about uh, Kevin Bacon spilling the beans on his uh, alien abduction from the holiday special. And listen, like, I... I 
I love Star-Lord from the first movie. I didn't really like how he was written and portrayed in the second one. It's been a while since I've seen it, and I've, I've definitely been itching to rewatch the first two. But I, I will say it felt like a more subtle version, a more toned-down version of Star-Lord in this one, it felt like. And, and pro- it's probably by design because he's more depressed. But I kind of appreciated that, to be honest. Um, I don't know. I, I thought Chris Pratt did a good job. I, I, I didn't I, – I, I, yeah, I didn't love – the whole um Gamora whole Gamora thing um necessarily but I, I I thought he I thought he I thought he did a good job for what he what he was in this movie for in general and I I, I didn't really the, the thing with this grandpa was cool and all but I I didn't need it I don't know I I'm so indifferent about Chris Pratt and Star Lord as far as after volume one that I'm just kind of Okay, okay, it was cool. I he, he definitely redeemed himself. I felt in through Infinity War and in this movie, I just did not like how he was how just did not like the way he was written, how he how he acted in Volume Two. Just something weird about Volume Two just rubbed me the wrong way with his with all that. But either way, Volume Three I thought he was much better, and I like the maybe and maybe also because he wasn't the focus. I I don't know. It's hard to say because I loved him in Volume One. I legitimately loved him. Um, it just felt like it just felt better in the, in this movie. Um, and there's more toned down version of that. So the Gamora stuff I thought was, yeah, I liked the idea that he had to move on from that. I will say, I almost thought they were going to have to, you know, fall in love, you know, whole thing again, but I'm it was so nice. glad they didn't. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I think that would have ignored the, the emotional complexity of that whole thing because, and actually there was some phrasing I didn't like in the movie. I didn't like that they kept saying she doesn't remember that. She can't. She didn't live it. Like that it's not those aren't her memories to have. There's no way that she would remember experiences she didn't have. This is a Gamora who emerged before we even saw her like on Xandar and all of that stuff in, where she met Peter Quill for the first time in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So I know we can we can go through the there's an entire identity debate and discussion that we could have about like who you are versus you know who you already are versus what who you are as a result of your experiences and all of those things but those were key experiences for Gamora we're not just talking about any 4 year period in her life we're talking about a pivotal moment of change in her life that she did not go through, that she did not experience, or several pivotal moments in, in terms of the emotional progression of that character. Just think about her relationship with Nebula, by the way. Doesn't have that breakthrough that those two characters had in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Like, There's a lot of this stuff that Gamora did not have. Even Nebula points it out. Like, this is who she always was up until some of these moments. Like, and you all thought I was the bad guy. Like, no, Gamora was not perfect and uh, was, was pretty flawed as all these characters were at various points in their lives. But she missed those experiences and those were critical. And that's, she didn't have the opportunity to fall in love with this version, with Peter Quill. And she's not just going to fall in love with him because everybody says, Oh, in the future, you were going to fall in love with him. Like she can't, if she doesn't go through the experience of that and go through the moments that connected the two of them together. And I know there are a couple moments here where they kind of tease it's almost happening. I think by the end of this movie, she can see why a version of herself fell in love with him. 
but she's still not there and she doesn't need to be there. And I think that it would have been way too forced. It would have felt like really, in my view, if they just had the relationship rekindled between Peter and Gamora, that would have felt like they were just kind of ignoring the consequences of Infinity War, where this character did die in that movie. I will say, like, in terms of the... Because I, I know you mentioned, you know, not necessarily loving all the Gamora stuff. I did feel like it... it I don't want to say hurt this movie. I felt like, as an audience member, there was something I was missing, but maybe that's how I was supposed to feel. Maybe that's where I was supposed to relate to Peter Quill and, and what he was missing in this story, where... I missed their relationship in this movie. I missed... But I, when I say their relationship, it's not just Gamora and Peter. I missed the version of Gamora who died in Infinity War. I missed her relationship with Nebula. I missed her relationship with Rocket, with Groot, with Drax. I missed her relationship with the rest of the team. I missed the Gamora that we lost in Avengers Infinity War. And I think maybe that's why my bigger issue with it was just that line of, she doesn't remember it, um, or she's dead to us now with like the... the the joke that Drax makes. I didn't necessarily love all of that stuff because I felt like, no, like she did die. And when they say Gamora's not dead, no, the Gamora they knew is dead. Like that Gamora died. The one that they're seeing now is a different timeline and maybe not an entirely different person, but different enough in a lot of ways that count quite a bit in terms of everybody's relationship with her. So that's where I felt like maybe some folks were, some members of the team were kind of in denial in terms of what really happened uh, because she was gone. And I, I do wonder what what the third version, what volume three of Guardians of the Galaxy is without Infinity War and without Endgame and Gamora never dies uh, during that culmination event of, of the Infinity Saga. And I'm not saying it was the wrong choice to have her die in Infinity War. It was an incredibly compelling moment in that story. And Zoe Saldana was unbelievable in Avengers Infinity War. And I want to give her credit for another outstanding performance in this movie where she had to play a version of the character that was very different from the one that we got to know and, and grew to love over the course of the, the first two Guardians movies. And then, of course, in, in Avengers Infinity War. So in terms of the performance, she was awesome. And there were also some really great moments with the version of Gamora that's in this movie. But I did feel, you know, the sense of loss and, and missing that original version of Gamora, or at least original to us. I felt that because I, I there was times when I was wanting to see her and a, a more advanced version of, of her relationships with these characters, not just with Peter Quill. At the same time, though, I'm glad they did not rekindle that relationship because that would have just felt like, like I said, just erasing it, just sidestepping of, yeah, it was kind of inconvenient that she died in Infinity War, but we've got a new Gamora now, and so we can just we can just pick up where we left off. No, you can't. And I think that was an important message to convey in this movie, that our experiences are important to our story, and our experiences are important in terms of how we are shaped and how they fuel who we are, because we change. Like, I don't, I'm not the same person I was, you know, at 39, I'm not the same person I was at, at 29 or, be, of course, even farther back than that. Like, I'm not the same person. And part of what changes who I am or part of what's led to my own personal growth and my own the evolution of my own identity are my experiences and how I learned from and grew from those experiences. And Gamora missed some key times, some key moments, and that's why she is on a different journey but uh, I know I totally just changed gears from Peter Quill to uh, to Gamora here. But I think with Gamora, though, in terms of the satisfaction of her arc, you know, there was the 
she was called out for you know not embracing friendship and family and and all of these things like she didn't find that or she wasn't going to find that like she did with the guardians and and how dare she and whatever but then by the end what do you see she found she's got friendship and family with the ravagers so as much as peter quill can say you're not even a real ravager i am you're not all of those things no this version of gamora is a real ravager and that's where she has family look how look how much she loves them and look how much they love her when she's reunited with them at the end of this movie. So it, it's a beautiful thing to see that, that Gamora found that. Gamora found that connection, that happiness, um, connection with others, care for others and being cared for by others. It was a beautiful thing for her to find and accept with the Guardians of the Galaxy, but that's not what that was not the trajectory of this Gamora. But she still went out and she still found it. And that is uh, something that I found really fulfilling about her character arc in this. So there were some mixed bag feelings on this, but I, I think that was intentional. I think that was unavoidable. What they did with this character, I, I still thought overall worked very well. And, and the end of the ending with the Ravagers is what made it for me. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I'm with you on that one. I, I just, That's where I, my, some of my criticism, it felt like he did just like a lot of third films, they try to cram a lot of like, exp- not exposition, but a lot of storylines in together. This one I felt they could have done without, and I would have been fine with it. It does have, it does have some good moments. I mean, Zoe's always a, 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 a Zeldana. Zeldana. <laughs> Zeldana. Oh my God. I hate pronouncing people's names. Um, I, I, I love her and I think she's great. She's, she's not, it's impossible for her to be bad in anything in my opinion. So like, it's she does fine. It's just the material is just not the most intriguing. It's just not the, what interests me the most of the story. And it does match the whole theme of moving on and, and, yeah. and everything, which I like, which that is cool. That I like. And I like that but, you credit Zoe Saldana just to go back to Infinity War for one second. I still maintain that her performance in Infinity War is one of the best ever in the MCU. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when she shows up as Gamora, I'm game. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm like, it's that at all. It's, I just felt like in the story, it just seemed like he was trying to put a, and that's my biggest thing on this movie. He, there's a, he, James Gunn does try to tidy up a little too much where I felt like he could have just dialed. That's why I'm not sure if I absolutely just love it. I like it a lot. I, I want to see it a second time to see if those, those things flow better for me the second time. So We'll see. I, I'm not sure how I'll feel, but I, I definitely feel that's some of the weakest elements of this movie. Yeah, I think we'll we'll get to the very end with everybody kind of deciding to disband as that version of the Guardians and you know go through that. But yeah, just to kind of put a feel like I put a button on Gamora. Go back to Peter Quill because I know I just kind of made that transition there. Overall, again, I thought that was a really good job with him. The only thing that that really stood out to me in in a not so positive way, as I said, the the death scene. There was just no tease or setup for Peter Quill dying, which is why I just didn't buy it as it was happening. And really, also the helmet, uh, the helmet. But everything else I thought with Peter Quill was really great, and Chris Pratt did a uh, did a really awesome job. And I, I thought I loved his recap too. By the way, even owning up to, although I'd say the play by play says it wasn't quite as bad as as the reputation of that moment was. But yeah. You know, acknowledging that how he lost his temper and, and almost killed half the universe, I, I thought was a really funny bit. Um, and that whole his whole recap of of his journey with Gamora was uh, I, I thought was really cool. But anyway, um, moving on to some of the other characters in this, I think Nebula was another one. I, I think Karen Gillan has been Zoe Saldana and Karen Gillan, but um, you know I've already praised Zoe Saldana, so Karen Gillan as Nebula. 
one of the I don't know if it's underrated. Everybody seems to to praise her performances, but still not sufficiently appreciated performances throughout the MCU because Karen Gillan has been incredible playing a character who has been on one of the biggest, like one of the longest transitions of a character from where she was in the first Guardians movie as, as much more of a supporting antagonist and not necessarily seeing the the full redeeming qualities, although feeling like maybe she's not totally at fault for how she ended up the way that she was. Um, and then, I mean, obviously with the hint at what Thanos had done to her, but getting into that territory, I mean, that's part of why, again, I love Volume 2 so much because I think that movie does such a good job of pairing these characters to where you get that argument between Nebula and Gamora that results in her saying, you always wanted to win, I just wanted a sister, and this movie reinforces that, right? Like, we we see that Gamora, you know, pre the pivotal moments in her character arc in, uh, Guardian, in the first Guardians movie, that without those moments, that we see the side of Gamora that, that Nebula saw. And so you understand Nebula's perspective going all the way back to the first movie. You understand that better after watching this movie or, or so. At least that's how I feel. And so I think in terms of Nebula's performance... So much uh, about this is is great because I think that Nebula has certainly been able to form connections like she bonded with Rocket during the events of Avengers Endgame, found a way to finally kind of bond with her sister. That great moment of the the hug that Nebula, you know, kind of sort of but not fully accepts at the end of uh, at the end of volume two. And then we see the way that she cares about these characters in, in this one. But we also see where even she has to continue her journey of, of learning what it means to be a family. And, and one of the things that I, I think James Gunn is so effective at that I love about Volume 2 and then a, a, a moment that really echoes what's best about Volume 2 and Volume 3 is the way James Gunn has these characters call, the, call each other out for the way that they feel, for the way that they act, and, and, and what that might be rooted in. These characters are outstanding at psychoanalyzing one another, and that shows James Gunn as the writer and director is really great at analyzing these characters, and it's so insightful within the writing and allowing these characters to, these relationships to really mean something because of the connection between the characters, because of the emotional intimacy between them, that's what puts them in position to be able to see things that, you know, see things in their friends that maybe their friends don't totally see uh, within themselves. And that gives them an opportunity to point things out, whether those people, whether they want it to be pointed out to them or not. But uh, a really great moment where Mantis kind of points out for Nebula of all you care about is intelligence and, and competence and all of these things. Of course, the whole Drax is stupid situation. But that's a pivotal moment because, not just because of, you know, obviously it's a great moment for Palm Clementif as as Mantis, which we'll get into as well, but it just shows how these characters still kind of have to learn about forming connections, and there was still a part of Nebula that she did genuinely care about these characters, and she genuinely appreciates being a member of the family, but also being a member of the family is meaning a love and an acceptance and a compassion that's not based on everybody always pleasing you or everybody always being able to contribute in the way that you feel would be most valuable in a given moment. Because I think there is an, an aspect of Nebula that's still very, very task-oriented, that's still very much get the job done, because basically that was her, that was the entire summation of her value 
for uh, for Thanos. And so I think some of that still lies within her. And that's something that I, I think they did a, a really great job of uh, of isolating within this story without doing so in a way that makes it seem like Nebula hasn't progressed at all. It's That's where I think this movie is at its best, is showing the way these characters have done such a great... Uh, showing the progress that these characters have made, but also showing where they still have a, a little bit left. And I think Karen Gillan as Nebula is just so good um, at all of that. And to the point where... You know, we get to kind of her final resolution in the story of, of ultimately she makes the decision that she's going to stay behind mm-hmm. and, and kind of lead the city of now she wants to help build a life that she never had. I mean, that's all that's just such a great way of having these characters again, just adding to how each one gets a chance to be fully realized by uh, the end of this story um, is showing how much progress has been made and showing how but while still showing the steps that still need to be taken and and giving them a path to getting there. Yeah, I think that Nebula is, is kind of that constant that I – she's a character I, I obviously never would have expected to love as much as I do through – and honestly, and not even through – I mean through James Gunn's movies, movies obviously, but through basically what? Infinity War and Endgame. Like she's like really developed more so through that than anything. And – I really like the, where the journey she's on. And I love her in volume three and she's just a constant, like she's not like uh, an amazing character in a, in a sense of like, she stands out the whole time for me, but she's such a consistent character that you need that. And I love how um, she's portrayed. I love just, again, the consistency of the character is so perfect. And I love how you see this very dark, being kind of coming to the light, but is still struggling with that in her nature. Um, there is, she's, Oh, you know what she's like? She's the exact opposite of rocket. Whereas rocket trajectory was a little different. It's like, it's almost like if, if, if rocket continued to be tortured, that's who she is. And she got out and had, you know, they have different, I don't know. There's, there's, there's an interesting dynamic between those two characters and ideas. And I, I, I do like that. I, I do like to have that on the, on screen and to see that perspective. So I, I do. And she seems to be like a character that'd be easy to show up, you know, later on. So, Oh yeah. yeah. I, I feel like her and Drax staying behind on nowhere has like totally has the makings of a Disney plus series. I, I think she, I've been wanting a Nebula Disney Plus series since we found out we were getting Disney Plus series. I I think this character is so rich and Karen Gillan, such an incredible job portraying her. The only uh, the moment I didn't like and this was not uh, it's it's not a performance note. It's just I didn't love the line of, oh, that's way worse than what Thanos did to me when they were observing what was happening to Rocket. I don't feel you needed that line to sell how bad Rocket's experience was, especially with all of the backstory we were getting. We saw it. There there was no need to um, compare trauma. Like, I I don't need Nebula to say, oh, as as bad as I got it, this guy had it even worse. It's like, no, Nebula's situation was horrible. Rocket's situation, also horrible. There there was no need to to compare it and and stack it any sort of ranking. I know Nebula is the one who did it. You're not saying some other character compared their trauma, but there was no reason for Nebula to even need to do it. But anyway, um, other than that moment, everything else I, I absolutely loved. And I think that uh, I think that Karen Gillan is uh, just such an incredible performer in in all of these movies. 
And I, I think she has done something uh, really special with this and, and does a great job in, in so many moments in this. I mean, even the moment when she realizes, when everybody realizes for the first time that Rocket is okay, that, that Rocket's alive. I mean, her reaction to that. And, you know, one of the, I felt, missed opportunities in, in Endgame was always, I mean, we got a little moment of it, but I always felt like there was a, a huge opportunity to expand on a, a friendship between Rocket and Nebula in that film. But I, I don't think we ever fully got there uh, in in these movies, but at least we got a little bit more of it here in Volume 3. And yeah, Karen Gillan was just, uh, was just terrific in this role, as was Palm Clementif as Mantis. And I, I'm really glad, Paul, that Palm Clementif kind of got to have a much bigger showcase. I know not everybody who watches this movie saw the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, but we sure did. And I liked mm-hmm. giving her that. And I also liked, by the way, in terms of adding to the significance of the Marvel Studios special presentations in canon, it was just a couple quick mentions of like, that's your brother. And if you didn't watch that, it's like, wait, what? Uh, so, I mean, I think you can pretty much, if you're an audience member who didn't watch the holiday special, you can maybe put two and two together of the whole ego thing. Like, like we talked about when we did our spoiler review of that holiday special. We didn't really think of it in those terms, but once it was put in those terms, it totally made sense. So I, I don't think it leaves the audience in the dark, but also at the same time, if you are a little confused by that, go watch that holiday special. And I, I think it's yeah. kind of cool for Marvel to tip the cap back in that direction. We know <clears> they've, uh, they've done a pretty good job, I think, with the Disney Plus series, but it, it stood to, we didn't know yet how they would handle it with the special presentations, but this is a pretty good sign of the significance of the special presentation. So I'll take that uh, for sure. Yeah, I think that with the I, mean, I love the the holiday special a lot, and I think it was a, it was a great kind of side adventure, and really got to show Drax and Mantis kind of without have them be the focus and and not have to worry about over explain everything and have a fun side adventure, which the, which <clears throat> which was I liked them in this movie. Don't get me wrong, but it definitely felt like sometimes a little a little bit like he was trying to use them a little too much to for like the comic relief. I don't know. I I thought Mantis, she was right at the heart of this. Like she had one of, I I thought the most powerful moments when she was, yeah. Or when she was just kind of yelling at Nebula, defending Nebula. Yeah. Yeah. Like I thought that was great. And, you know, calling Nebula out, as I talked about these characters, it's uh, such terrific storytelling to show the progress that the characters make. And then yet it still gets revealed to them of the growth that they still have, which is true, right? None of us are like the fully formed best versions of ourselves. Like that is this continuous journey of, of self-discovery and self-improvement and all that stuff. I would say man here. I liked Mantis and Drax in this movie. The, my criticism, some of my criticism, criticism of the movie is that it, they dive a little too, not dive a little too deep, but there's just, it's, sometimes it feels like it dra- the movie drags, not, I mean, let me see drags. It just feels like we're getting a little extra stuff, which I felt like that's what volume two's main problem was for me. It's kind of drags and like goes over, not over the top, but just, it's, it's, it kind of goes a little too much into something I don't really care that much about. And some of the Mantis and Drax stuff, I felt like, it just felt like he wanted to kind of go give them more to do and give them more stuff to talk well, about in more comics. But, hold on, hold on. But he should. But I don't know if it just it, – it, yeah, I, it was – most of it was fine. Listen, this is not a giant criticism. I would say 
I, it just sometimes it felt like it killed the pacing. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It wasn't because it was bad. It just, sometimes it felt like it killed the momentum of the movie sometimes. And he and I think and James Gunn definitely sacrifices that stuff a lot of times for you know I think for because you are building character in some ways and not all the time but in some ways you are. And I think just in this movie again this is not a giant criticism criticism. I just felt like sometimes the movie did get halted sometimes do because of, of these moments with Drax and Mantis and other things. And I, I think of like the motorcycle part, it's like that whole thing was like, okay. You well, know, I, I mean, that's just a bit to get them where they need to be, that's which is insane. Yeah. It just, it felt like it just was over convoluted and we want, I, I don't know. I, I felt like there was probably a, a, maybe a more streamlined version of this we could get like towards the end. But again, this is I'm pitting I, I I'm 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 you know nitpicking at this point. I'm yeah. not even trying to like. Well, yeah. No. There's something to be said for that. Look, they could have just had Mantis and Drax go along on that trip and then just have a side mission as opposed to stay behind and to set up the fact that you won't listen and stay behind like you're supposed to and to add to the frustration. But I know also that served its function, right? That's part of where it's the last thing to get Nebula really annoyed with Drax to the point where. She kind of starts to go nuclear, and then Mantis is like, "Hold on," and call gets a chance to call Nebula out a little bit. And I, I did like that moment, and I think that's a very powerful thing, especially when Mantis kind of explains to Nebula like maybe why she's feeling the way that she does. Of like, this is the way you see people. This is the way you're valuing people, and that's not really the right way to do it. Like Drax is great because. He makes us laugh and he loves us. We love him. And I like that Mantis as the empath in the group is the one who is maybe the best at identifying everybody else's feelings without necessarily touching them, like her cheat code to figure out how everybody feels and how everybody thinks that Mantis is able to just kind of intuit a lot of the ways that her friends, her family are thinking and feeling and allow them to become more aware of it, even when she has to maybe in this moment more aggressively call Nebula out for it. And I think that's what I I love about it is the way these intense emotional scenes happen between these characters. And there's even a lot of anger. It's very emotionally charged when it happens. But I think this amazing thing that James Gunn is able to convey and the actors, of course, through their performances is like there's still a lot of love and care that's in there in those intense moments. And I think, you know, people who've just dealt with things within family and close friendships and stuff like that. I, I think that stuff is incredibly relatable and in that, you know, it's almost as if, you know, nobody can make you as angry as the people you love. And you see some of that being uh, coming into play here with the way these characters interact at times. And, and I, I think that's where they can kind of lose sight in, in various moments of how much they really value each other. But I think, they keep bringing it back, though, and they're, they're able to kind of bring themselves back from the brink. And I think that's maybe something these characters used to not be able to do, that whatever relationships and connections they used to have probably dissolved rather easily because they weren't going to stand there and, and fight for them or take the feedback and then continue to be part of this functioning you know, family relationship, family dynamic. And I think that's part of their their growth. And I, I think you have to show that through or you it's worthwhile. It's valuable. I mean, we can always, of course, argue over the execution and how it affects pacing. Nothing really tripped me up in terms of pacing, like when they're stopping down to have uh, what I thought was a, a relatively quick chat, but but still very relevant and very valuable to the story in that intense moment that we're talking about uh, between Mantis and Nebula with Drax there. 
I just thought that really worked. And I thought that really sold Mantis's value in this team. And, and I think it really shows who she's kind of been to everyone here, that she has kind of taken on this role of the being a big part, a significant part of the emotional core of this team. And I'm sure at various points, everybody gets their turn to be the emotional core. But um, Mantis also, by the way, knows what it's like to be angry with Drax, to be annoyed by Drax, the whole Zargnut situation in this one. And of course, the argument over Zargnuts back in the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, like they don't always get along. Mantis knows what it's like to be angry with Drax, annoyed by him, ticked off, whatever it may be. But I, I think that's where, you know, that's maybe what was helpful to her to spot what she was seeing in Nebula is like that anger. It can't just be that. Like you need to be able to see the other value. Like whatever, as angry as Drax might make Mantis at various points in time, like she's no, she still knows that that's someone who cares about her and she cares about him and they care about the rest of their family together. All of that stuff I, I think is just really great. And I do think if you're going to, make this movie and they are the guardians of the galaxy and she's a full-fledged member of the team at this point. Yeah, you've got to give her her moment. I, I think I'd rather have something and, and I didn't end up feeling this way, but I'd rather run the risk of affecting the pacing a little bit in, in a way that maybe isn't as great as, as maybe could possibly be executed. I'd rather have that issue than the issue of this person is supposedly a member of the team, but they didn't get their due in this story, especially when it's the last one with this iteration of the team. So I think Mantis had to get focus in the story, and I think the focus that she got was done right, really, really well. My, but that's but see, here's the thing. It's not – I liked that moment with Drax, and I think you sure. still have that with, by, with, with some of the trimming and pacing could – you didn't have to sacrifice that. I think you could establish – you've already you could already established in the previous film too – um, and every, other times. And I love the fact she, when you, it's a good moment for all three of them. See, that's the right. thing I think I, I love that about that moment that with Nebula and Mantis and Drax, because because you've already we already know that he's a big, dumb idiot. Right. As far as Drax. And I love I, I think you could have had that and not had to sacrifice some of the pacing to get Drax and Mantis together and be like, Haha. maybe and also maybe I'm like that because we've seen the holiday special and that's part of it. And that's maybe where. I don't know. I, I well, just, yeah, is, I mean, well, is, these, are some of my, these are some of my issues that I had with volume two that I thought James Gunn went overboard on. And I, I saw like some of those seeds a little bit. Again, I'm nitpicking because I didn't mind this movie at all. I liked Mantis and Drax. I just felt like as I watched it the one time again, only the one time, the pacing definitely gets halted a little bit for the for the for his kind of divulgence in these characters, which is not always a bad thing. It just it just interrupts it when you're, when you're, especially when you're telling an emotional story that you're doing. It's it sometimes does kind of like jolt you and like, oh yeah, we're in I don't this, know. Like, I mean, stopping down movie. in an emotional story to have an emotional moment kind of makes sense to but me. But I'm not but, talking about that moment. But I'm but, not talking about that. No, moment I know. But even even ones. other things throughout, like, well, look, we just we'll agree to disagree on the pacing issue. Like, I don't think this movie has any pacing issues whatsoever. And I, and I think as far as Drax and, and Mantis and their contributions to it, like, I think they struck the right balance. But I actually liked that. They weren't just um, there to be silly. I like that they had genuine. They had all of that, which you know people love. And look, Drax was a big hit in the screenings that I was at. Whatever they were doing with Dave Batista, all of his jokes were once again landing, and everybody was ha seemed to be having a blast with it. And uh, look, and and I was having a blast with it and, and loving all of that stuff. But look, the 
in addition to the silliness, that's what makes it work and that's what makes it fun is that there is some real heart underneath all of that. And I think that it's certainly a great way to kind of manifest that. And and also the stuff where Drax, you know, they don't get a chance to, he doesn't always get a chance to show his value. And a lot of times he gets in his own way in terms of demonstrating his own value. But here we kind of get this moment. And, and I love that his contribution, even as Nebula, like, now I see you for what you were meant to be, you know, not Drax, the dis- you weren't meant to be a destroyer, you're meant to be a dad. And and I love that moment because that was something in terms of Drax, like what did he, when we first met him, like he's this lost, scarred, angry person. Why? Because he lost his wife and his daughter. And so I think bringing it back to that where Drax gives, makes whatever he considers monkey noises with his, you know, beep boops and whatever, in order to just make the kids feel comfortable so that they can try and save those kids because they were frightened with the approach that Nebula and Mantis were taking um, because I don't know how much experience either one of them really has with dealing with small children. I guess Mantis, but that was some really dark stuff with, uh, with ego. So uh, in, the case of, uh, in the case of Drax, like that was where he showed it. And like there's an emotional intelligence to Drax as much as you may, it may seem like he doesn't have that it comes up, it really manifests in the most valuable moment that it could. And, and I think that's what bring, that's what makes it feel like this whole full character is that you don't, it's not just the silliness. Yes, there is a ton of that, but um, you know, the way I think James Gunn balanced it, I thought was pretty effective. And then, as I said, uh, amazing showing with Mantis for Palm Clementi. If I, I think she has been so incredible in this. And, and I love that they had this, the bond between Drax and Mantis, which is really carried through. I mean, an amazing moment between those two characters in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, continuing on with what we saw in the dynamic between the two of them in the holiday special, and then what we got here in Volume 3. Again, it's not always sunshine and roses between the two of them. They don't always get along, but it still comes from this very real, genuine place of of caring about and, and understanding one another. And that's what I think is the most beautiful thing about Mantis is that even even when she's been expressing her own frustrations throughout these stories, she has she actually has never lost sight of the value of what Drax really does mean to her. Though I almost wonder. I, the only thing I didn't totally love is I didn't like that when Drax was like, "Oh, I'm not really appreciating this defense," and and asking if Mantis thinks she thinks he's stupid, and she says yes, and then she just says forget. I kind of want them to. I don't know. Deal with that. But there was no time in this story to deal with that. And See, I guess. Exa- yeah, exactly. Although I guess, you know, well, look, he is kind of dumb, but also not. And I think that's part of the that's part of it for Drax as a character is, yes, he does a lot of dumb things, but then also he will surprise you. Like the whole thing of why didn't you tell us you you spoke their language with the kids? Why didn't you know? Why didn't you ask? Because they just assumed that Drax, if they don't speak that language, there's no way Drax does. And it was, you know, an incorrect assumption, as so many often are. But yeah, I I could see what you're saying with with some of it in terms of pacing. But for me, I I thought this definitely navigated it. And this wasn't something I had an issue with in Volume 2. Like all those stop-down character moments, back and forth, knock-down, drag-out arguments and stuff like that. I was all about that stuff. I ate it up in Volume 2, and I still do. But I don't... I think... I would say that those moments in this movie, I, I mean... We can get a stopwatch and figure it out. I actually think they were more concise in this one um, compared to volume two as far as pacing is concerned. But yeah, nothing there that that really tripped me up. And I was just really enjoying uh, the performances. And I also I mean, praising 
Karen Gillan, Pom Clementi, Zoe Saldana, and everybody else. And but also Dave Batista as an actor, I think, has continued to show us more and more with this character. I know maybe a little over the top of just loud laughing Drax for the especially the first act of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. But for the most part, what he's shown us with this character, I, I think he's given us a lot more than a lot of people would have initially expected from him way back when he was first cast. And he's just continued to grow as an actor, even outside of these movies. And he's done such a, he's done such a terrific job. So, yeah, I, I love Mantis. I love Drax. That's maybe in terms of the final resolution and, and where everyone ends up. I'm a little bummed that Mantis and Drax don't end up together, but of course, wherever, not in terms of romantically, obviously, but just and they're not, they're not going to be paired up in a way and continue to go on the adventures that they've had. But I guess it is time for them to each kind of go their way a little bit more and then hopefully inevitably be reunited at some point. If there were one main member of the Guardians of the Galaxy who I kind of felt maybe took a little bit of a backseat in this one, I would actually say it was Groot. Um, mm. and, I, and I don't know how much more there is to say about Groot at this point. I mean, worth noting, this is not the original Groot from the first Guardians of the Galaxy, as James Gunn has confirmed many, many, many times over the years. That Groot really did die and sacrificed himself at the end of that movie. So this is the one that we saw... Well, in a pot at the very end of uh, in the post credit scene for Guardians of the Galaxy. And then, of course, Baby Groot in Volume 2, Teenage, Adolescent Groot, whatever, in Infinity War and Endgame. And now we have this version of Groot in Volume 3. But I still think, as I said, uh, I, I love the moment at the beginning where everybody else is just fed up and annoyed with drunk Peter Quill. But Groot is just concerned, wanting to wanting to know that Peter is is actually okay. And... I think Groot, for the most part in this story, just kind of seems like he is along for the ride, but he does get some pretty, I think he does get some pretty key moments. But the best moment for Groot is one that I think is, you know, it might trip some people up, but I think most people have figured it out, and, and James Gunn has since uh, confirmed it. I know Jermaine Lucier on io9 wrote up a great article about it, and James Gunn confirmed that, no, in fact, that is the correct interpretation, is, you know, at the end, you hear... Groot say, I love you guys. And you wonder, like, did Groot learn how to say something else? And the answer to that is no. It's we finally learned how to understand him, which they actually set up because Gamora earlier in the story is saying, you guys are just making up things that he says, right? And then she actually understands Groot and responds to him at the very end of the movie. And then we understand. So, if you don't know, if you don't know Groot, if you don't understand Groot, then you would have heard "I am Groot" like everybody else always hears him say "I am Groot." But to give him that moment and really give us the gift of that moment of now we finally understand what Groot is saying, it's letting us in as the audience, letting us in as being now members of this family, honorary members of the Guardians of the Galaxy because we've been through this journey with these characters. That is a really nice touch from James Gunn in order to actually kind of give uh, a final resolution to this this end of an era with this trilogy. I, I thought that was something that, I mean, it's it's so simple and yet so incredibly touching and brilliant. I, I absolutely loved it, and that's the moment that for me kind of makes Groot's present in, uh, presence in this film. Yeah, I, I would totally agree that Groot definitely took a back seat in this, but I don't know if we necessarily 
needed to have him take yeah. front and center. I don't know what else he could have done. Like Exactly. We, well, we've already seen him sacrifice himself. We've already seen him grow into a teenager and kind of step up in Infinity War. Um, you know, so it, it felt like he'd gone, he'd kind of And he gone, steps up here. I mean, he, he, he oh, battles sure. Adam Warlock. Like, he gets his moments. Yeah, and like, I feel like there's, yeah, I feel like we've gotten... To be honest, I thought Groot was played perfectly. I don't, yeah. I and, don't know. And, well, and Kaiju Groot was awesome. Go oh, like, God, with yeah. Groot, go well, full Kaiju. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll go, we'll go there eventually. That, That's a, a, a oh God. Well, awesome. I'm not even talking about the mid credit scene when they actually say like go full Kaiju when like he has to scare you know the townspeople of the new of uh, the new utopia because oh, right. they were that's attacking right. the rest of the Guardians there. There was that moment. I mean, that's there, right. I and and even that, the yeah. you know the back to back, you know, having the grenade and the back to back firing that we saw a, a piece of in the trailer um, with uh, with Star Lord and, and the action sequence later on in the movie. I said the big hallway thing against the the Hell Spawn. So Groot, I think, really got to step up more in from an action standpoint in this, and then still was very you know still resonated emotionally, especially. But I would say the key moment for sure is is the I love you guys at the end. Yeah, I, 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 and we we were talking about you know kind of issues with you know, again nitpicks for me earlier with some of the you know stuff with Mantis and Drax or just in the, like, that kind of stuff in general. The one thing I will say, I thought Groot was played perfectly. I thought he was balanced enough to where you know because we all know he's kind of like the heart of the team, but he really was. I felt like he was perfectly portrayed around again. Like the whole Adam Warlock stuff was great. I love that they planted that seed. Um, and everything. I, I just love that. And I, I love to see that he, yeah, he was, to me, he just was a perfectly like, you know, balanced character yeah, of what and, we needed. You know, it's good that you pointed out the Adam Warlock thing. Cause not just the action, but he is the emotional linchpin now for Adam Warlock in the MCU. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think there's, and again, like, I think, God, I'm thinking about Adam Warlock and Groot talking to each other for like an entire. This sounds like a, it sounds exciting. I'm a, I'm not gonna lie. Between Rocket, Adam, and Groot, all oh my god, I'm like I'm ready. So that and that to me, I think is where it's, it's really nice about Groot is that he's not we're not over like blown with it. And that's again, I, one of the strengths of this movie is it knows what it wants to do for the most part, and it does it well with Rocket. And I think like Star Lord and Groot. I, I, they definitely are. I, I'm never. I never got annoyed at Star Lord or Groot at all. Right, we're getting too much. They definitely were balanced. I thought perfectly for their minor. For you know, obviously Star Star Lord had a majority of a story, but um, Groot had a perfectly a small balance. And I and it, it honestly it left me wanting more because after Volume Two, I didn't really. I was like, man, whatever. Teenage Groot's kind of funny. But then after Infinity War, I was like, oh, I actually like this version of this character. He's definitely a lot more heartfelt than the other incarnation. So and that is and, and honestly, that's a lot. Even though he sacrificed himself in the first one, he's a lot more there's, there's empathetic in, in, you know, in this in this in incarnation, it seems like anyway. So um, I, I like I like this version and seeing that and now seeing him at the end of the movie, we'll, we'll get in the mid credit scene at, at one point um, was definitely really cool to kind of see the growth uh, if you will, of, uh, of Groot overall. Yeah. Well, I also think, um, in the, um, emotional growth of Groot, never mind the physical growth that is yet sure. to come, but, um, it was nice to see kind of the, the sweetness of Groot return. Cause that was what was disappearing right from the teenage version, right? Cause the teenage version just has the teenage adolescent attitude, whatever. Right. And then he's just too cool for these moments. And then there were little moments where, you know, who Groot really was underneath all of that, 
um, kind of was able to shine through just briefly in Infinity War and Endgame. But um, he's back to being a very, you know, his his sweet self in uh, this one and, and similar to the original version of him from the first film. We see more of that in this story, the, the sweet kind of compassionate um you know, endlessly compassionate version of Groot gets to resurface in this story. And that's something that I thought was a, a another nice win uh, in this story. Now, uh, a couple of other characters I want to make sure we cover um, who are definitely full-fledged members of the Guardians by the end of the movie and are kind of fringe members throughout most of the film, and that's Kraglin and Cosmo. I want to start with Cosmo because that's an easy win, um, although, I mean, not to say that some Great creative effort and writing was uh, wasn't required. Also, some really great CG. But then the vo- uh, the vocal performance, voice performance by Maria Bakalova. I love Cosmo in this. I, I think Cosmo has been. I don't know if missed opportunity is the right phrase, but certainly that's just a character that was a big part of the Guardians comic book run that ultimately inspired these movies. And outside of a, a cameo as part of the collector's collection in the first movie didn't really get to see Cosmo play much of a factor in this. And I was so excited to learn that Cosmo was going to play a, a larger role in Volume 3. And I, uh, I was just hoping that it would actually live up to it. And I think they covered it. I mean, from the backstory of the, the, you know, the Russian space dog to the, the power level as well. I mean, schooling Craglin uh, early on in the movie, but giving Cosmo the big, you know, the big action moment of you know holding together of kind of having to create the the air seal so the kids and the animals and everybody could get uh, away from high evolutionary ship into the safety of nowhere and you know giving a, a big power moment to Cosmo while also just making this an, an incredibly charming character and also what was very true to the Cosmo from the comic books is that Yes, this is a, a dog that can speak with its mind, that has telekinetic powers and, and all of these different things, but it's still, but Cosmo is still a dog who cares about the things that dogs care about and is incredibly hurt by and cannot let go of Kraglin calling Cosmo a bad dog. And that is the, the main thing that matters to her is correcting that. And of course, it sets up a great moment for Kraglin to call her a good dog and in an action beat toward the end. But that was also Cosmo, and I think that was also what made the character so much fun in the comic books, is in so many ways, not a dog, and yet in so many of these other basic, fundamental, also adorable ways, totally a dog. And so I thought uh, Cosmo was awesome in this one. I, I'm very happy this character finally got these moments uh, in this series, because it, it, then it would have definitely gone down as a missed opportunity if we made it all the way through this trilogy with uh, Cosmo just getting a cameo. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think you summed it up best with it's a missed opportunity on this. And I don't think and I don't think that is a negative way. And I because I, I, I know you didn't mean that in a negative way either, but that's kind of what it was because she ended up being this really great character. And again, we we both read the original comic books, which are great, and Cosmo is a big part of that. And huge. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're like well, she well. I always thought Cosmo was a he. I don't remember if it was a he or a she then, but it doesn't matter. But either way, I, I always thought Cosmo was, was I think he the, he was the um, the like one setting him on missions, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. So I mean, like like Cosmo was kind of like their defunct Nick Fury, if you will, a little bit uh, in that in those original Albert and Landmine runs. And 
I, it definitely was cool to see the nod because Rocket and and Cosmo never got along mm-hmm. in the comic books, and I, and they definitely hinted that in that first uh, cameo appearance. That I thought was awesome. And but looking back, you know, you kind of think, okay, I can I can see a, a talking raccoon and tree. You don't want to put a dog in it, you know. Too, it's a little too much. I could I could understand that for a mainstream audience, but now in retrospect, it's like, man, they, I I do feel like maybe Cosmo should have showed up, maybe in volume two or. Uh, the, the, I forgot. Is Cosmo even in Volume Two? Like um, I thought. I thought uh, if was, there might be a cameo, I'm I'm forgetting I swear. about. But I don't. Oh yeah, yeah. Isn't it? The, isn't it? Um. Or wait, that's the end credit scene of. Oh, yeah, there's the Howard the Duck post credit scene from Volume One, like when yeah. um when Cosmo comes up and licks the collector's face. Um, right, there's that right. part of it. I'm I'm spacing on whether or not there's uh there's an appearance in Volume Two. But, because, because, yeah, but it, because I remember there was because in Volume Three or uh, Cosmos in the holiday special, right? So, correct. yeah, so that, I think that was the first time we heard. I, I, that sounds weird. That sounds wrong to me, but maybe it is. It's been a while since I've seen Volume Two, so I need to re- rewatch the movies. But, but anyway, uh, any event, I do. I agree with you. I feel like maybe we should have saw you know her show up a little bit sooner. And that would have been probably pretty cool to see it. And because I, I gotta tell you, I, I I'm not the biggest Craglin fan, those who know, but Cosmo, like in their relationship and, and having that, like those two together, it definitely again, talk about pacing, you know, I felt Cosmo was, was definitely given a lot in this, you know, a decent amount in this movie, to be honest. And it all paid off. I never felt like it, it that whole thing never felt like it was it disrupted the pacing. And maybe I liked it more. I don't know. Regardless. I love the the good dog, bad dog bit. As a big dog person myself, that totally reminded me of my dog, Wheezy, because that's exactly what she would do. She'd be like, you called me a bad dog. Oh, my God. Like, she'd be so bummed out about that. It's It's the worst thing you could say. I know. I I loved that about Cosmo. And I just loved it. And that was a good recurring bit throughout the movie of, like, Cosmo just could not let that go. And at the same time, Kraglin was being so petty that he couldn't let it go either. Because yeah, Cosmo <laughs> showed him up, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think Cosmo's in Volume Two. I know Cosmo shows. I think there's a picture of Cosmo in the credits, and as I'm kind of looking it up here, that's all I'm seeing. So is uh, yeah, so Cosmo not not much there in Volume Two, but at the same time, yeah, like I'm, you know, yeah, it, was there an opportunity to maybe bring this character in and feature Cosmo more prominently earlier on in this trilogy? Maybe, but I, I I'm fine with what we got. I, I think we finally got. A a sufficient the Cosmo finally got their due in in this story and yeah Craglin that was something that I was also I knew when I was watching the movie because I know you're not the biggest Craglin fan um, I like Craglin I, I think has has had some really great moments and moments that have cracked me up and look I have so much appreciation for Sean Gunn I know we have a real MVP award in our, our MCU fan awards. And that's more about being, you know, just a, a funny performance or whatever it may be. But when you talk about a real MVP of the MCU, I'm not saying he's the only one, but Sean Gunn is, is way up on that list. And not just because of what he's done as Craglin, but even more so Bradley Cooper does an amazing job with his voice performances as rocket. And he's incredible, but the person, the rocket that everybody's seeing and and acting off of and acting against with on set, that's Sean Gunn. And there's no question that he has done so much to inform Rocket, one of the best characters in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. So Sean Gunn deserves an, an, an immense amount of credit for that. 
and you know more than he'll probably ever get. And as hard as I may try on this podcast and others may try elsewhere, but Sean Gunn, I mean, it's just immeasurable what he has contributed to the MCU. And so to see him get to give a performance in a way that the audience can see it as Craglin, I think adds to a lot of fun. And what also made it work for me is I really like that he still kind of sucked with the arrow, especially at the start of the story. Like what I was not going to be into, and I knew you certainly wouldn't be either, Paul, as, as not the biggest Craglin fan. Like if we got into this story and Craglin was already like a full-fledged guardian whose you know arrow whistling powers were already at the level of Yondu, then I would have been like, mm, I don't know. That, that would have been tougher for me to stomach. But the way they built to it here of like he's he had some skill, some ability at the, at the early part of the movie. And but also he's totally afraid to jump into the action, as we see with Adam Warlock. And then he finally masters it at this moment where he absolutely has to. And then do we actually get an appearance as he's seeing and being inspired by Yondu um, in that moment? I thought was really cool. And then, yeah, he just kind of unleashes. But still, even then. It's not like he saves the day all by himself. Cosmo comes in and plays a, a really key part of that. But I just think Craglin's a lot of fun, and, and I love giving that attention and that spotlight to Sean Gunn in that way because he totally deserves it for everything he's doing as Craglin that the audience gets to see and everything they don't uh, with what he does as, uh, as Rocket. And there were some other cool things that were kind of set up here. I mean, in terms of some familiar faces... I love seeing Christopher Fairbank as the broker return in this one. And Lloyd Kaufman, who we thought was killed in the kiln uh, when Ronan said to cleanse the kiln back in the first one. Apparently, he's still alive and he's there, part of the game they're playing on Nowhere. So it was nice seeing some of those uh, those familiar faces return and, and get just a, you know one last kind of appearance, one last little quick cameo final bow in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So all of that stuff I, I totally loved. But we mentioned before that we were going to get back to kind of Rocket in the present day once he's awake. And I know, Paul, you talked about this, too. I mean, that key moment for Rocket to be like, I'm done running. But he also just gets to drive home. When we talk about themes in this movie, I mean, one of the ones that is is fairly obvious, it's right there on the surface, but that doesn't make it any less significant in the way it was portrayed. Like, obviously, this is a movie that is saying a lot about animals and how they should be treated and being very anti-animal cruelty, which I think most people can generally say, yes, they're anti-animal cruelty. But the way animals are thought of in this story, that speaks to James Gunn. I mean, if you follow him on social media over the years, you know how much James Gunn loves animals is, you know, every time he's going to. I mean, I, all the way back from the first movie when he's posting pictures with otters and everything else, which now you get with Lila in the story. James Gunn absolutely loves, loves, loves animals and cares about them very, very much. And so I, I think this is James Gunn getting to be, I, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of filmmakers and a lot of storytellers in the MCU have been able to put a lot of themselves into their stories. I don't know if anybody just puts their heart on their sleeve through their scripts, through their movies as a writer and director in the MCU as James Gunn. Like, he just opens up to who he is and how he feels and in ways that are some ways that are just very fun and very funny, some ways that are adorable, but also in some ways that are very, that can be very dark and very emotionally complex as we've talked about with some of the, the issues that these characters deal with throughout, uh, throughout their journey in this trilogy. But 
This is James Gunn getting to have his kind of his love letter to animals and the way that he thinks of them, the way that he sees them. And that's there. There's that key moment from Rocket when he says, we have to save the kids. And they're like, we got him. He's like, no, all of them. And he's referring to the animals. And even there's a comment from another character talking about, I thought we were all, we were sticking to the higher life forms. It's like, no, they all deserve to be saved. They all deserve to be protected. And that's Rocket getting to take that stand in that space as he's embracing his own identity when he takes on the name Rocket Raccoon. All of that was just was incredible. And it, it allows the story to kind of take have this meaning that I think, you know, it does change perspective. I mean, you talked before, Paul, about just how, you know, lessons that can be learned from stories like this, even when they are difficult lessons that feature just, you know, very difficult moments. And I think certainly the way this can expand people's perceptions of maybe how they might consider or reconsider the treatment of animals. You know, I, I think most people generally are against overt acts of animal cruelty, but other things that maybe you don't necessarily think of, don't consider, and you might uh, have an expanded perspective on now after something like this. That's wonderful. That's totally worthwhile to do in the storytelling. And then just more specific to Rocket and his journey I love the way that he comes out on the the other side of this, that we don't necessarily see Rocket. You know, we really do see him transformed by this experience and kind of reliving his past while he was, you know, while he was out, while he was injured. And I, I think he got a chance to see just how much he always, just how good it, it has always been to have friends. And it's even just as good, even better to have family. And, and the way he kind of got to reconnect with that side of himself. And yes, there was pain in that, but there was also a lot of love, a lot of joy. And that's what he has found again with his guardian's family. And and even when he wakes up, like the whole, everybody just being, these are characters who have struggled to admit how much they care about one another. And then when he does wake up, it's Rocket, we love you very much and we're glad you're alive. And, you know, Rocket kind of makes a joke on that, but he still really feels it, and I, you know he loves and he appreciates that acceptance, and I think you see that kind of carrying forward in the way this character wants to, that he's willing to do whatever it takes, and he's, he's done running, he's going to do whatever it takes in order to stop the high evolutionary, to save all of these animals that he couldn't save before, when the best he could do was get away, he couldn't even save his best friends. But now he gets an opportunity to do that. He gets an opportunity to stop the high evolutionary, but also not let the high evolutionary dictate the terms of what Rocket has to do. It was the high evolutionary that made Rocket turn towards violence, but it wouldn't be the high evolutionary to make Rocket commit to violence everywhere and anywhere, all the time, in every situation. That's not what Rocket uh, ultimately chooses to do at the end of this story. And all of that is just so rich, so deep, so compelling. And, you know, Bradley Cooper, of course, voice performance, amazing. But the writing here and the direction from James Gunn, it's, uh, I mean, it's weird to say some of his best stuff, but that should, that ought to mean a lot. Because if you've listened to me talk about these movies over the past now nine years, uh, you know, that's a really high bar with how highly I've thought of a lot of the stuff that James Gunn has done in these movies. But, his work on Rocket, the backstory, and then the present day of what all this means to Rocket going forward and saying it's it was your story all along, you just didn't know it. 
yes, it's been it is Rocket Story. It's all these other character story, but as much as it is Rocket Story in this movie, um, that is that is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three at its finest. Just as Rocket has been part of the finest storytelling within this trilogy all along. Yeah, Rocket Raccoon, and I love calling him that now. Yeah, and again, I, I, we, we referenced shame it on me for not saying it enough. Rocket Raccoon. Yeah, I, I just kept yeah. going with the uh, the. But I was saying it for the sake of abbreviation. But I love the full name, Rocket Raccoon. Yeah, and I, I think that that's the the cool thing about the story is that, and again, t- going back to No Way Home and how these movies somehow found a way to kind of like not just end in, on a big battle fight and not really move character, or, or but really actually the opposite, where it's like we're giving these characters more meaning, which is rare in these third films. Usually, you're trying to like have this closure, whereas. You know, it's and it's more of like I defeated the big thing. I, I I overcame this big obstacle. Whereas I think that these characters, like in, in Spider-Man and No Way Home and, and Rocket Raccoon, like they become more more of themselves. Is that if that makes any sense it of the d- difference between makes these, total you know, sense? Yeah. So it's not it's not just a full on like I have overcome. It's like no no no. They have moved on and have become higher than than what they were before, and that is very rare in these films. And I think that that's what's so surprising about this movie, because I thought when you, when you take out the the name rocket or the name raccoon out of the name rocket raccoon, it makes sense in in the context of everything. But when you, when you see the story and you, and I'm glad you brought up the writing again for James Gunn, because I do think this is one of his best writing uh, over his best writing overall of a main, of the main story that it, again, I go back to what I said earlier. You're, you're, he is able to intertwine some very heavy, deep matter that and, and visually disturbing things and make you accept it and also have you root for them, which is so it's so hard. And that's the thing about James as a writer that I think that is so I, I can't wait to see him on Superman. And and I think he's the perfect person to be in charge of the DC uh, movies going forward, because one of the things he talked about in one of his interviews, and I think this is there's a reason why I'm saying all this is because he talked about giving the power back to the writers. And that's the thing that I think Kevin Feige has done with creatives. And I think that that's the thing that, that James understands about these films is that, yes, you can have good directing and good writing or good, good acting, but if the story and the script falls apart, then that it, it's good. It's not going to be, it's not going to be sustainable. You can get away with that a couple times. And, and I'm not, and it's true. Like I like movies that have bad scripts. I have no problem admitting that. I have no problem admitting that sometimes the stories are weaker and the scripts are weaker than other films that are maybe better, but I just connect to it differently because maybe that I connect to a performance or the directing, the pacing is actually better than what the script puts on paper. There's reasons why these movies are better than the script gives. I mean, Sean, you know better than you know this as well as I do. That's the reality of the industry and of like the, sure. of the medium. Well, you know? and just, Marvel movies, especially. I mean, it's it's a famous part of their creative process that hey, the script is a living document that changes and can change quite a bit as they shoot a movie, as they mm-hmm. even edit and finish a movie in post production. And obviously, that that's not a great way of making. In general, it's not a great way of making movies. It has somehow served them well uh, quite a bit over the years, but maybe not always as well uh, lately in in a couple of instances. But 
Mm-hmm. I also think that, uh, and it definitely doesn't help you out when there's a writer's strike, by the way. Uh, that's yeah. uh, that's rough. But, um, uh, you know, shameless fan show plus plug alert, sorry. Um, but also, I, I think when you talk about James Gunn and what he's done, and look, he actually does have his scripts done when they go make these movies. Does that mean nothing changes? Of course not. There's no such thing as Absolutely. a script that... I'm, well, I shouldn't say there's no such thing. In general, though, even scripts that are super polished, super tight, ready to go, are going to change a little bit at, because as you make the movie. Because, look, the movie is also, as you're making it, going to reveal to you what it is. And so sometimes it, it is a balance, right? Sometimes you want to be able to listen to that, but also sometimes you need to be able to listen to that script that is the foundation that why you went and started making this movie in the first place. And so... I think what Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 should do, as the first two volumes had done, is really reinforce the value of a great script before you start mo- uh, before you start filming as exactly. much as you can. And, and look, James Gunn talked about this. Like, people were asking him, like, where, when did he write this? And although we should have already known when he wrote this. He was already sharing pictures of the, the cover page of the script. He wrote this before he got fired. So he wrote this before... The Suicide Squad and, and everything that he's gone and Peacemaker and, and getting his new job as you know co-president, co-CEO of DC Studios, and now writing and directing Superman Legacy. This is all before that. Now, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three went into production after some of those things, but the script was already there. Does that mean that James Gunn never opened it up and, and made any revisions to it? No, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But the foundation of this story was well set and long before they went off to film it. And that's not to say you need to have your script finished two years before you start filming. Like, no, it doesn't need to be that. But ideally, before you you call action, before cameras start rolling on that first shot, that, yeah, you have a really solid script as as much as you can. And I, I understand why the Marvel Cinematic Universe being what it is makes it difficult to do that at times. And I also understand why Marvel would look at this and say, we made all-time classic superhero movies like Infinity War and Endgame, for example. We made those movies like that. We made those movies with scripts that we were rewriting uh, quite a bit as we were making those movies. But that's also going to turn out to be a very, very, very expensive way to make movies if you want that to serve you well, because you are going to end up doing a lot of additional photography, as we know Marvel has done over the years. And I know that's always going to be part of their process. But in terms of that balancing act, yeah, maybe take take a few cues from what James Gunn has done in these first few volumes with what he's uh, with what's delivered here. Because, yeah, this this script is a, is about as tight as it gets. Um yeah. From what I can, from from what I gather, and who knows, maybe James Gunn is lying, and Kevin Feige would say, "No, that script changed a bunch as they were making the movie." I don't think so, though. I, I don't think Kevin yeah, Feige would so call either. James Gunn a liar because I don't think James Gunn is a liar, at least in terms of uh, how how finished this this script was before they well, went in and they started shooting. Because it, it shows, it yeah. shows in this movie how tight these things are, and we don't end up with some of those, you know, just moments. Whether you like the most. Three most recent examples that we've talked about on in movies, to varying degrees of how much they bothered us, Paul. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Thor Love and Thunder, and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Regardless of where you land on those movies in terms of how much you love them, how critical you were of them, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. 
The consensus is, though, I think all of us were able to see and spot that not everything was really locked and dialed in on the scripts for any of those three movies. Is, is that fair? I would say that's, I say for the most part, yeah. I think I think there was probably loose concepts, and I think that's where Marvel probably got in more into trouble. And I think that's where I think James Gunn is probably at the strongest is his convictions. He knows and, and and really feels the story and the characters that he's writing and in charge of. And I think that if you look at the suicide squad, you look at the, the, the guardians films and you could see his love of the material and his passion for the material. And I think that comes with the story. And I think that's where James talked about in that, in those articles. And he said, you know, when you do these DC films, we're not moving forward unless it's ready. Like meaning like the story is ready. We're not we're not going to be beholden to like we're putting out this there right or at this point. That's what got DC in trouble before. Marvel can do that because they've kind of built up. They have a, a, a production and they have an assembly line that uh, does feed creative and lets people be creative. Now, granted, there's been mis- there's been hits and misses, and I think people have, you know can all see that. And I think these three films are good examples of that. Like you said, I think the problem, Sean, is is honestly. Is that you're you're getting people, and I, I put Taika in uh, a little bit in this as well. Um, you know, is I don't know how passionate and how much they love the material they're they're writing. I mean, I don't I don't know to be honest. I don't know if it feels it always doesn't feel the same. I'm not saying Taika didn't like the story that he was writing, but I think it's different when James kind of gets he really fell in love with those characters. You know, and he initially didn't love them. I don't think before because he was you know pitching different stories with Marvel. He kind of fell into that, and I think that the difference is I think that James understands where these these really outlandish comic characters can you know thrive in this moment, and I think we look at like Ragnarok. It was kind of like a perfect storm. It was like it was a perfect time for a different kind of Thor, and it was a different kind of film. And it worked for that kind of setting. And then it's like we get, you know, Thor, uh, Love and Thunder. It's like that. It wasn't a terrible movie. It just it, for, at least for me, like you said, you could tell things weren't fully fleshed out, formed, and just enough TLC I felt in some of those parts. I, you know, as far as the overall, I think, function of that whole movie. And I would say the same thing for uh, Ant Man, Quantum Mania for a, in a little, in a few yeah, things here and there. I, I would say I still like that movie a lot. Yeah. In fairness to those directors, though, like I think Peyton Reed loves comic books and Marvel superheroes every bit as I much like, as James Gunn yeah. does. I, and and Taika was very vocal about how for years before he ever really adapted more of that material in Love and Thunder, how much he loved Jason Aaron's run and Gore the God Butcher and uh, the Mighty Thor with Jane Foster. Like he was a big fan of those things. I don't think. I don't think the shortcomings of those movies and look, Sam Raimi loves Doctor Strange. So like, I I don't really think and I know as far as Michael Waldron who who wrote that movie, I I don't know how big of a fan he is or isn't of uh, of Doctor Strange, but seems to be a a pretty decent sized fan of those things. It's not their fandom. It's not their love of the material or the characters that I question. Sometimes it it, it's not about that. Like you can have the best of intentions and, and the most love and respect for these things and still just it still just comes apart in, in some spots in the execution that can happen. And, and that can well, be, no, totally. And that can be for a variety of reasons, which is why I, I don't like for whatever shortcomings those movies have, just like any other shortcomings in any other Marvel movie. I don't necessarily like assigning blame to any one specific person because we don't know that we're not in the the conversations as these movies are, are put together 
as they're ultimately made. Even for the writers, like you don't know what notes they got, how many rewrites they were asked for, and all of these things, like certain ideas that you don't like in a script. You don't even know if that was their original idea or if that was the 18th thing they had to come up with because people said no to the first 17 ideas, half of which might have been better than what was ultimately there and a part of it. Like we don't, We're not in that process and we don't ultimately know, but what I do think you can spot is for whatever reason, regardless of who's to blame, you can see stories that just didn't seem as fully sure of what they were um, in, in terms of their execution to where certain things just did feel a little thin and not as fully developed as they could have been, which maybe represents changes in direction as the story was being made or, or whatever the case may be. But you definitely see a much more fully realized vision um, with this movie. And that's not to say this is the most full, this is the, the best developed Marvel movie of all time or anything like that. I, I don't know where, where I'm not even in a position to have that conversation or, or make any of those sorts of arguments. Just it does appear that this script was pretty tight and that comes from James Gunn knowing what he's probably wanted to do with these characters all along. And, and so and that's having a vision and also getting the ability and the trust to execute that vision. I mean, he's credited Marvel for basically not really saying no to him very often, maybe one or two times over the course of making these movies that he's been able to do whatever he's wanted to do. And so I, I think, and thankfully, his vision was something really, really special and really spectacular. And he had the talent, the skill, and the work ethic and everything that it took to bring that to the screen in a way that the audience could understand and connect with. And that's a very, very hard thing to do. And it's very hard to do. It's very difficult to do that once. And we've seen filmmakers within the MCU who can do it once maybe even twice, but it just each time you have to try and do it, it gets even harder. And even for James Gunn, right? Like not everybody loves volume two as much as I do. But I, I think overall though, James Gunn, as I would say, is is three for three in the way he's been able to execute his vision in a way that the audience can connect with. And maybe on different levels from one volume to the next, now to this third and, and final one, you know, variations in how people might feel about each one and how much they might love or you know connect with each one but there is some connection there and they at least get it and that is it's not it's not a knock on anyone else or any of the work that they've done it is only a testament to James Gunn and what he's been able to do as a writer and a uh, and a director on this movie and boy that makes it sound like the, like the wrap up statement but it's not there's like there's things we we have to make sure we we go over here Paul mm mm-hmm. You and I, we we alluded to this earlier in, in, the, in the podcast, but I, I want to make sure we go over this. So the final resolution for the Guardians. So just to kind of recap here. So Rocket is going to lead a new version of the Guardians, which we'll get into when we talk about the mid credit scene. But Star-Lord is going to go to Earth, hang out with his grandpa. Nebula and Drax are going to hang back and kind of lead the society on nowhere. And Mantis is going to... Just go off on her own to discover what she wants. I I love this ending for these characters. And this might be my my biggest criticism of the movie, however, is I, I do feel like it, it spent a lot of time teasing death of characters as the end to pull the swerve of, no, we're not actually going to kill anyone. We're going to just give them all the opportunity to go off and, and grow in their own way. Because even for Rocket, right, he's 
He's still a member of the Guardians, but now he is the absolute unquestioned captain leader of the Guardians, which is so it is a very much a different role for him than the one he has played up until this point. So everybody's going off into very new things. What I don't necessarily think the movie did the best job of uh, throughout the course of its story is setting up that this is what everybody wants to do. They did a good job of setting up Peter Quill, you know, going back and, and hanging out with his grandpa. I don't necessarily, and even for Mantis, you know, I'll, I'll buy that she needed to go off and discover what, what she wanted for herself. I think for Nebula and Drax, it, the movie doesn't do the best job of, of defining what they want in a way that this choice for them kind of makes sense. I mean, the, the dialogue and the, the delivery when we actually get that speech at the end, it does enough to where, again, I, I don't... This isn't some massive criticism where I say this undoes everything and I don't like the ending. I actually love this ending for these characters, but this is where I do think some of these points I wish had been in the same way that that Star-Lord's ending with his grandfather was woven into the conversations that were being had throughout this movie. I kind of wish some of these other characters and what they want was woven in uh, a little bit more uh, throughout the course of the movie uh, in the same way that we got with with Star-Lord. So, I still love it. I love that everybody's alive. I love that everybody is graduating uh, graduating to new different things, new chapters in their lives, even if they're still a member of the Guardians, now a leader like Rocket. So I love it. I just wish some of this stuff had gotten a, a little more set up throughout the story. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably my other kind of weird, again, it's a nitpicking at this point, but I definitely felt that some of that was a little too much again that whole convenience thing of like well, well now we're, we're gonna like, co- yeah it was just like oh i gotta talk to everybody <laughs> and i was like what yeah it's, yeah it's just like okay and it's just like and then he's like you're gonna be the leader now it's like oh i thought because there's that running gag of like who's leading the team i thought like there was i always thought it was like kind of like they were co-leads like he was, there was never like one i don't know if that star lord is like the old leader maybe i'm just just because I, you know, my whole Chris Pratt thing, but I, I thought that was a little not bad. Well, it always seemed it like, like his leadership status was tenuous because exactly because like, yes, like Rocket was always challenging it, and even Thor was able to immediately challenge it as an Asgardian yeah, of the galaxy. Okay. So yeah, like yeah, I think we all like understood and accepted that Star Lord was the leader, and I think most of the team viewed him as that, did view him as that, but it wasn't. It was never super solid in the way that it was portrayed. Thank you. That that's that's beautifully said because that's what I'm like. I'm like, okay, that seems a little odd. And then when you go around the horn, I'm like, oh, this is like the tidy, really, really tidy bow we're putting on everything. I'm like, I think that's like, I think again, I'm nitpicking. I don't think it's a terrible thing. It definitely is ultra convenient of like, well, now Drax and uh, Nebula are gonna go off on nowhere, and and you can have they can show up every once yeah. in a while. I don't like, know. It's, they can't, yeah, and, and Nebula saying, I need you here. It, I mean, it kind of seemed like the Guardians were already living there on Nowhere and, and not necessarily, exactly, yeah. like, ignoring the place. I mean, I felt like there was an opportunity, especially when, like, one of the kids is Phyla, who's on the team. So, like, I, I don't understand why Drax and Nebula can't be on the team um, it was, at, yeah, at the I end mean, of the movie. It was like, we we de- we want to have a really new roster that, you know, we, we need the the ratio to be right of original members to new members. And it'd be too many uh, original members. If Drax Nebula or Mantis stick around and be on the team, I mean, you don't want star Lord to be the only one who leaves. And obviously Gamora, you know, had her set up to go back to the ravagers. So right. she's not going to be on the team. So I, I mean, I, I get it. 
And again, I, I, I like the idea of these characters wanting more for themselves yes. and wanting new chapters. So that part of it, I totally love. I just think that they did a really good job defining Star-Lord wanting something more, something else than what he, he had been doing as a leader of the Guardians. I feel like maybe there could have been a little bit more of that for the other members of the team who were ultimately going to leave. Because I'm like, well, they all admit what they want and want to leave the team because Peter Quill invites that conversation. What if Peter Quill never says, I want to have a talk? Uh, it's like Peter Quill says, I, I need to go. And everybody's like, yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. Um, that's kind of where, yeah, that, that conversation came about uh, a little too quickly with not enough independent setup for each character yeah. involved, um, yeah, I, I, which doesn't I, I, make it bad it doesn't make yeah. the the resolution for these characters bad again it's it, i actually think it's really good i quite like it i'm just quibbling over some of the execution does it derail any of it for me exactly. not at all but exactly. you know when people say i never say i never criticize the mcu i think they're clearly not listening to the podcast but also yes. this this segment of the show was for you uh yeah so. <laughs> and, and, and listen like, i want to say too I, I think that it's valid it's, it's valid and i do think that they're again my it's a nitpick i by definitely i'd say it's say, a little more than a nitpick i, I i'd say you okay. know setting up character choices especially their final choices at the end of a trilogy that's 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 a significant thing that that could have been done uh, uh, at least a little bit better. I'm not saying it was bad, just saying there was an opportunity to add even more to it. But right. But it's still, it's choices I want these characters making for themselves. I want them to continue to grow. And, and I think they've done as much as they can for each other as the Guardians of the Galaxy. And yeah, they do need to take on you yeah. know, new chapters for themselves. And, and so I'm, well, I'm all about that. I just think you can... If they didn't spend so much time teasing death um, and yes. characters who were unlikely to die, that time could have been devoted to you know, what they were ultimately going to do, which was not kill anybody, just give them all new paths to walk in their in their future wonder, going forward. I wonder if, if Mantis going off on her own uh, sets up anything for uh, Kang looking after her for being the celestial Madonna. Uh, that's a deep cut. If you all know what I, you I'm know, talking about. <laughs> I, I honestly, who knows, right? Because I mean, who knows at this point, Mantis right? has been like full-fledged Avenger. Like, you know, we there's a lot that can happen with that character. And and that's also an, another one that, hey, she already was a co-lead in a holiday special. So mm -hmm. a Mantis Disney Plus series also makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of things that they could do and, with mm -hmm. these characters. That's why I, that's actually maybe if I was going to have a little bit of a nitpick of where everybody ended up. I, I guess, because I, I don't see the space, especially with Marvel Studios slowing down and not making as much. It's like, I want, I kind of wanted a Mantis and Nebula Disney Plus series, because I don't think we're going to get a Mantis Disney Plus series and a Nebula Disney Plus series separately. So if you kept those two characters together, maybe we would have an opportunity to see that. But we still could, you know, even though these characters are, are parting ways at the end of this movie. It only takes one line of dialogue to be like, hey, you're here. And it's like, yep. And then we're off and running. I guess that's technically two lines. But yeah, it's not that hard to set up a reunion if you want to bring these two uh, characters back together for another story. But you know, I, I like the resolution for all of these characters, uh, even if I thought the the setup to get to that point uh, could have done, uh, could have used just a, a, little, a little extra material somewhere uh, in this story. But overall, I mean, it was still... 
this entire movie was was told beautifully, but I, I don't want to... I, I Before we wrap up, we have to talk about the mid-credit scene. Well, I guess real quick, the post-credit scene was just a silly thing, as we talked about earlier, yeah. uh, with the whole mowing the lawn situation. I love the newspaper headline. I, I love that Peter Quill is there on Earth, and and Marvel making it very clear that the legendary Star-Lord will return. There's some question, I guess you could say, about these other characters, but I'd say not that much of a question based on this mid credit scene. We know these characters are, are here to stay, and it's just a matter of when and where they pop up going forward. But the mid credit scene, I absolutely loved. I was wondering as I was watching the movie, I was like, who is this girl and why are they showing her so much? Because <laughs> there was just no way that she, I was, or maybe there was some way that she was just, they needed somebody to be, you know, a, a featured victim of the high evolutionary that, that needed to be saved in this moment. And so they, they chose this kid, but I was wondering who is she going to be? And then once we cut to all of this new group of, Rocket Raccoon, well, eventually Groot is revealed, Kraglin, Cosmo, Adam Warlock, and there's that girl in a Guardians of the Galaxy suit like the rest of the group. Who is she? And then we actually hear her name spoken, Phyla. And Phyla is, we talk about members of this team, or even though Cosmo was more of a a marching orders person, not necessarily the full-fledged member of the team. But Phyla and Adam Warlock were Guardians of the Galaxy in the 2008 Dan Abnett, (laughs) Andy Lanning run, otherwise known as the Albert and Landmine run of Guardians of the Galaxy that inspired these movies. Phyla was one of those characters. She was one of those Guardians. And so I, I love that she's here now. They didn't necessarily set up like quantum bands and some of the other stuff that like is, you know, gets to become part of her mythology, although a lot of that, it seems to be tied up in the bangles for uh, Kamala Khan and and everything that's happening, going to be happening in the Marvels, it appears. So I don't know where Phyla is going to fit into all of this long term, other than she is finally in the MCU, a guardian of the galaxy, like she was in the comic books. I love that Adam Warlock is on this team. Cosmo is there with a uniform on this team. Kraglin having earned a spot on the team, I totally love. And then, of course, Rocket Raccoon as the leader and Groot as we get almost more of like the King Groot look uh, of what we see here uh, with this just ginormous version of Groot at the very end of this movie. I'm all about this new Guardians of the Galaxy lineup. It looks like it's so much fun. I don't expect Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 4 anytime soon. But this is the team that we I, I do think inevitably pops up somewhere in Kang Dynasty and or Secret Wars um, just like the Guardians were able to make their way into Infinity War and Endgame, uh, there's room for them in the next massive MCU crossover event. And uh, I'm, I'm all about the next steps that we get to take with this team. This this mid credit scene had me very excited. I think it was a great way to provide closure to the original trilogy and then kick off uh, a, a whole new you know a whole new set of things to be excited about with with the new team, which I wasn't sure if this movie was going to do that because it was the end of James Gunn's iteration of the guardians of the galaxy. I I wasn't sure if it was just going to be more about the end and not so much about the new beginning, but we got both in this movie. Mm -hmm. Thanks in large part to this mid credit scene. And that's again, uh, the generosity of James Gunn, I think to provide that gift that, yeah, it's, it's his kind of exit stage left at, at the, as you know, bringing closure to this trilogy, but also, 
kind of teeing this up to say that, look, you know, the Guardians aren't over just because my trilogy is over. This iteration, he was true to what he said. It was the finale to his iteration of the Guardians, but not the finale of the Guardians of the Galaxy with this new beginning that he gives them at the end. See, and really quickly here, did did Phyla Vell, did she... Did they establish that she has powers in the? As I, I went to the bathroom, her eyes glow a little bit. So, but okay. like what she can actually do? Well, they do. She is the one who, um, she's the one running around in the hamster wheel with the high evolutionary, yeah, 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 yeah. where yeah, yeah. like she never gets tired and and all of those things. So yeah, she's what her powers are in the MCU are are yet to be revealed. I think they just give you enough to show that yes this person is powerful yeah, she has more, yeah and i think that that's interesting because i've always i don't know the characters remember her super well from the comics i know she takes the the becomes quasar in the comic books right. essentially at one point so it'll, it'll be interesting if she shows up in the marvels i mean she has that whole marvel obviously uh connection from the comic books anyway so it'd be cool if she kind of shows up and who knows Maybe the new Guardians show up in the Marvels. I would not be shocked if it was a post-credit scene or have some kind of small little cameo uh, in there because it's cosmic, right? So that's – and this is where I would say, too, I, you're right. James Gunn did – and I don't know if this was intentional or it was kind of a little bit of both. Like, hey, we can introduce a team and and I could – you know, and, and Marvel's like, yeah. You know, Kevin's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's – Let's set up and show people. And if they don't like it, then we don't have to use them. We can whatever. And if they like him, we can kind of build off that. And I think they did a great job of building off that because they gave that, you know, Philavel a, a little, you know, a little arc in that, I think a little bit. And again, in the context of the story, it worked. Um, you have, I, obviously, I loved Adam Warlock. Uh, the Groot, when he shows up in the new version of Groot is amazing. I love, it reminds me of the original uh, yeah. Groot from the, from the Annihilation Conquest comic books that I just read. Uh, where he's just this giant, you know, huge monster thing that they were, where he basically was from the original uh, incarnation of Groot um, back when Jack Kirby created him uh, back, you know, before Marvel was a thing. And um, th- I also obviously Rocket, Rocket talking with everyone. I mean, it, the chemistry already was there, I felt. And and you know what? We, we've, heard, we've heard rumors forever but this is where probably Nova is going to come into it. You know, I mean, Nova probably is going to fit right into that team and be a perfect, you know, a balance of that. And I, I, I think that's going to be, that's my prediction, not guaranteed, but I think it's a good safe bet. Cause I think Nova is coming at some point soon. Um, cause I think cosmic is where it's at for Marvel. I think Marvel will go full cosmic mainly for films going forward in the next couple of years after the multiverse saga is kind of, you know, dies down. And I, def- I definitely think that Nova will play a big part in that. And I think that that team is so ripe for the for the for the picking. And 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 also, like you know, hearing rumors about some Fantastic Four stuff of a you know a potential uh, potential villain there, Galactus could very well be uh, a a, per- a turning point for these characters. And the Silver Surfer could show up maybe in that, not in Fantastic Four, but in the Guardians, you know, because Adam Warlock and Silver Surfer have a you know they do have a relationship ship in that in that movie or in the comic books and i've always liked them together i've always thought they were a good strong combination good old ron Lim and jim starlin man they back in the early 90s comics mm, chef's kiss and i do think that if if you had silver surfer show up in the guardians film or incarnation of that uh i think it would work because adam warlock could probably it could be the one talking sense into silver surfer at that point because he kind of was a little bit kind of like in the same vein of of him at this point and was it showed sacrifice to you know to be 
to kind of you know, win him over. So I, I think there's some potential cool stuff they could do with that. Um, I just think that the chemistry of that, of that team is, is really awesome already, and I can't wait to see it in action in a different film. And I do hope we get not a volume four, but a different like branding and different kind of uh, thing going forward with Guardians. Volume three should be the ending of James Gunn's Guardians. I just hope they choose, if they do go uh, forward with a new film, it's someone like James Gunn in a sense that they have a vision and it's a director-writer. And that's one thing I want to kind of add, too, that I think there's a strength of, of James Gunn is that it's one person's vision all the way through of directing and writing. And again, it's not always, a, you know, you know, Taika also co-wrote the other films as well and, and, and Love and Thunder, which is not my favorite. But that being said, I do like, the, I do prefer with these films specifically, I do like writer-directors together as like one unit. I think it's a stronger performance usually all together. Um, this is in my opinion. And I think I do it varies it, from thing to thing. I mean, I, I think when you have... You have a, a writing team and a directing team with Marcus and McFeely writing and the Russo brothers with what they did with Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. There's no right or wrong way to arrive at, at the best stuff. There are different avenues to get no, there. I, but I, like I said, but I yeah, don't think it's right mean, or you, wrong either, but I yeah. think there's definitely – but I definitely think in, in, my, in my, my experience right now, like, again – I just I like to have one person's vision all the way through writing directing. I just I, I think I prefer that with these with characters like what we're getting, because it, it just helps with continuity. Now with with McFeely and everything, they wrote all the films, and it's a little different when you're going off of I think in that direction anyway, because they've already written the first film, written the second, and then they just build off of that. I think there's 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 a commitment and a trust there. But I think just for me going forward, I prefer if a writer and director would do majority of these things. I just for me, it just feels like it's more cohesive. And the Guardians, that's what I'd want continuing. But I mean, I, that's just that's just me. That's just me. Well, as long as it's uh, like I said, either thing works for me. And look, it, it's not going to happen. You're not going to have everything being led by a writer director. So if it's as long as it's an effective collaboration, I'm okay with it being a collaboration because ultimately filmmaking, even when you have a writer-director, still a very, very collaborative um, medium. And I think, you know, when we look at everything that went into this, you know, we talked about the cinematography. One thing we didn't mention was, you know, the, well, I mean, we've talked about it, but in terms of its contribution to the story, but without necessarily evaluating it, the visual effects in this movie were just unbelievable and and Steph Soretti who was the visual effects supervisor on this as he has as he was on the very first Guardians of the Galaxy movie but also did Doctor Strange uh did Ant-Man and the Wasp did Eternals like has done an, an amazing job uh with uh with his contributions to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and and everybody on this team really did something uh really did something special in this and especially with this one I mean I know there's been a lot of criticism of MCU VFX as of late, especially after Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Well, whatever was plaguing some Marvel projects in certain moments, although I, I still don't, I don't think the VFX for the most part have been nearly as bad as, you know, beauty being in, in, the, eye of the, in the eye of the beholder, if I could get that out, as always. Sure, uh, there's always that, that part of it. I don't think everything's been great, but I think a lot of the mar the MCU visual effects have been have still been pretty good, but we'd certainly see what it's like when they're at their best and and when they're at their most cons and consistently at their best throughout the course of an entire film. 
there really weren't shots that were uh, that were tripping me up on this, and, and so it was. I loved it, and there were so many. When we talk about the obviously the CG creature characters, not just Rocket Raccoon, but Lila and Teefs and Floor, uh, so many visual effects elements to this movie, and then also feeding into the action sequences. Like I said, then another great hallway fight. It's but it's not just it's not Daredevil this time. The Guardians had their own great hallway fight in uh, in this one as well. I, I loved the VFX throughout this. I, I thought they looked pretty incredible throughout and kind of a return to form of what we can, what we have come to expect, what we've learned to expect from the visual effects in these movies when they are at their absolute best and, and maybe uh, maybe at their most expensive in this movie. I don't know, but uh, the, at least whatever money was spent on this movie, it shows up on screen uh, with the quality of, of what we're seeing here. And so I, I loved it. And, you know, just a, a few quick things to throw out. Yes, I love Nathan Fillion finally getting, I mean, I know he's had his cameos like in with his voice in the first movie. He was, in, you know, Simon, he was the original Simon Williams. I know Yaya Abdul-Mateen is going to be Simon Williams in the Wonder Man Disney Plus series. But don't forget that Nathan Fillion was once Simon Williams in some movie posters that were part of a set for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 that didn't ultimately make the cut. Well, he's made the cut uh, in this one. And uh, I thought he was really funny in this with the whole like, you know, moron, I got one of those too. He was a lot of uh, he was a lot of fun in this. But I, I think ultimately what really drives Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 for me is what's always driven this franchise from the very beginning, you know, from an opening scene with the tragedy of. And that's that's the thing. I think these movies have done a really good job of showing us these characters and, and how they process trauma, how they pro- how they deal with tragedy for better or for worse, so that maybe we might learn or at least get in better touch with how we deal with the things that, that we come up with, the obstacles that we face throughout our lives and how we can do so with, uh, again, not always in the most constructive ways, but if we can find a way to approach those things with love and still find space to laugh and see value in that and what that means uh, to us, whether it's individually or what it means collectively as a whatever group dynamic you may have, friends, family, whatever it is. I, I think there is something really, really special about these movies that has captivated audiences. And I, I don't think it's just because, oh, it's really funny that there's a talking raccoon and a talking tree. Um, it's that there is a lot of emotional truth within those characters um, in, like I said, for better, or for worse, in some of the in ways that aren't always that are necessary, that are valuable for us to watch and endure as an audience alongside these characters and then for the emotional lows. But then that it's because we go through those lows with the characters and, and maybe how that en- enlightens us and helps us process some of the lows we have in our own lives to set up those those immense, those incredible emotional highs that we get to enjoy with these characters. And it's all about reframing things and, and putting things in new perspective and, and being able to learn and being able to identify things within ourselves or being open to others, identifying those things within us and listening with an open heart and then ultimate and having that commitment to being better and being the best version of ourselves that we can be for ourselves, but also for those who we know are counting on us and those who inspire us to be the better versions of ourselves. And I think that is really at the core of these Guardians of the Galaxy movies that have meant uh, so much to so many. And I I certainly speak for myself when I talk about how much they have meant uh, to me. I'm never going to be able to articulate how much these movies have meant to me over the past nine years. 
Um, I will try to continue to articulate how much these movies have uh, have meant to me and how much I've connected with them. But uh, as I said, watching this movie for the first time and even the second time, as the credits were rolling and we're seeing these pictures, images from the Guardians in their own movies, but also images from the holiday special, Infinity War, Endgame, that was an emotional experience just like it was watching this movie. But one of the things I'll, I'll always appreciate is you know, the dog days are gone as the as Florence and then the machine plays and Drax finally dances and everybody is dancing there on nowhere. And I, I love, by the way, I know that uh, that I've seen the video of, of Florence actually watching that sequence and, and getting emotional and, and what it is, because it is an, an incredible, beautiful moment of just pure celebration with these characters. And, and that's something for us as an audience to celebrate alongside these characters, because we've all been on this journey. And that's why we now understand Groot uh, when he tells his fellow guardians, but he tells us that he loves us because we love him. We love them all because of this uh, remarkable journey that James Gunn and company have taken us on with these characters. So it's a tip of the cap to Gunn, to everybody, obviously the entire cast, everybody involved in the making of these very, very special stories that I know we will we will carry in our hearts for as long as we possibly can, you know, for from, you know, into the forever and, and beautiful sky with our, our memories of these stories and, and what it was like to be able to look forward to them and ultimately see them with James Gunn, not only living up to our expectations, but a, a subverting them, exceeding them uh, and everything all around and in between. These movies are, uh, are are really, truly something special. And as I said, in my view, in my estimation, Guardians of the Galaxy makes James Gunn, or Volume 3, makes James Gunn three for three. It is another Marvel masterpiece from Mr. Gunn. All I got to say is, I, I, yeah, I have nothing really to add to that. That you, That's really well said. I, I think uh, only I'll, I'll add to that basically is just that um, I appreciate what James Gunn, I think, did for, uh, did for comics, to be honest, because I think he really showed mm. you that the most, the most, you know, obscure characters and, you know, or the, the smallest of you know, even a small comic audience can, you know, these characters have, you know, they resonate for people for a reason. And it's, and it really is about bringing out the the best parts of them and, and showing them and really, and, and, and showing them their best light. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did in volume one. And I think it just shows you the power that these characters, you know, with, with the right care, these characters in, in these comic books, again, not every comic character is going to flourish and in, 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 on film, but I think that there's a, again, I always go back to, you know, what, what, whatever comic, comic book company you're a part of, you know, you go back and any character that sustains, you know, a small fan base for a long time, you know, the, the doesn't even matter the size. There's usually something, you know, worthwhile to go there. And I think James Gunn was able to look at the material and tap in that material understand the material and bring out and also put his own flavor into it and shows you, I think how it's done. That's why he's part of DC studios. You know, now he shows you how and why it's possible and how to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think that's to me is what is so awesome. And, and again, the right way being put yourself in the material, put the good themes in the material, have fun with the material, know the material embrace the material and that again not a, not always a, you know perfect storm i don't love volume two 
but I love majority of the work he does. And I think the guardians is an achievement and a, uh, a blueprint of how you adapt comic book characters into film or other, uh, mainstream, uh, live action media medium. Yeah. I think the way he took the ones that those characters that everybody kind of immediately scoffed at as Marvel just being you know too high on their own success and destined for their first flop after the Avengers with the announcement of Guardians of the Galaxy, those two characters being the talking raccoon and the talking tree. And instead, what James Gunn showed us is that audiences have the ability to connect with, to understand, to relate to any character as long as you tell their story the right way, as long as you tell their story in an effective way that just gives the audience a chance. And I don't know if there's a, a better lesson in compassion or empathy through storytelling than what James Gunn was able to achieve in these Guardians of the Galaxy films, culminating in the outstanding Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And that is where we will wrap up this edition of the show. As always, super long for an MCU spoiler review. So as always, thanks again to like the three of you who made it all the way to the end of this podcast. Really do appreciate you for hanging in there. Appreciate anybody who dropped off and totally understand why. Very long show. Um, but uh, thank you for your continued support, for following us at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. Maybe that's a thanks in advance if you weren't following already and now you're about to. Same goes if you're going to check out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Gerber or on Apple Podcasts, searching for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel. So you can hear me talking about, uh, or hear us talking about the writer's strike and the impacts of that on the MCU, and also talking about the financial performance of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, what that does and doesn't mean, and of course, even more news that's coming out as it pertains to the current WGA strike uh, impacting the MCU. So plenty more Marvel talk to come over on Fan Show Plus. And of course, once again, uh, on uh, MCU Fan Show. But as I said, that will be it for this episode. You know where you can follow MCU Fan Show. Paul, now tell them where they can find you. You can find me on YouTube at the Comic Binge YouTube channel. Please go and subscribe there. I appreciate everyone who already has. Uh, I recently just did a Guardians of the Galaxy MCU required reading episode where I dove into the uh, Annihilation Conquest Star-Lord miniseries that came out, which in my opinion, is a true start of the current incarnation that you all know and love from James Gunn series. The majority, honestly, a good portion of not, I'd say like 70%, 65% of the team is uh, <laughs> in that book, essentially. And also some fun characters. It's a short read, it's only four issues. Me, Chris, um, and uh, we, we had a blast talking about it. Uh, the boy Zach from the Spy Duke Experience also shows up and we talk about that. It's a lot of fun. And then also... I'm going to let Chris and other people talk about the, the movie and a review show for the, for, for the comic binge as well. But I'll be obviously most of my thoughts will, will be on this. So I don't have much else to say other than just kind of leave the conversation. So lots of more, but either way, more volume three talk and also more comic. Oh, if any episode of the comic binge, more comic book recommendations, follow me on Twitter at Herman 22 with two ends, AKA P thug. Appreciate y'all. God bless. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Take care. We'll see you next time. It really is good to have friends.